Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 58 Illuminated Text I have so many questions. Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode, we look at religion, empathy, and endurance. We look at things that last. This show dives deep into the Trinity Trilogy for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Well, last episode, I said so long to the survey episodes, believing that Justice League would give us too much to chew on. Well, this episode is a survey episode. (laughs) So check the end notes for more on that. This episode is about things that endure, that are precious and meaningful, specifically at the intersection of religion, art, and literary technique. And, as usual, those are all pretenses to talk about other things, which I'm sure you'll figure out before we're done. (laughs) We're going to briefly survey the explicit influence of religion on these films, simply to affirm that it was actual, intended, and not disclaimed or denied by the filmmakers or imagined by the fans. Then we're going to look at how the idea of an illuminated text influenced the filmmakers. Next, we'll use a literary lens to look, applying literary technique and conventions found in the Bible. Finally, we're going to consider those in the context of criticism. Note that this is an academic approach to these topics, requiring neither faith in nor agreement with these beliefs or practices. But familiarity will maybe make some of the references easier to understand. I definitely hesitated to tackle this topic because of how easy it is to conflate religion with radicalism, how it is both part joke and truth about how strongly some feel about these films. But at the same time, I think this episode might illuminate why it manages to resonate so strongly with some while others only see erroneous execution. We're going to seek an answer or understanding of maybe why these films aren't more clear or explicit, and as long as I'm disclaiming things, I might as well be explicit. I'm no fan of idolatry. This isn't an excuse to elevate Snyder, exalt Superman, or found some new faith based on these films. Nor is this an attempt to excuse all flaws or failings alleged as misunderstandings but to propose the possibility of an alternative approach. This is an attempt at expanding avenues of analysis and appreciation, and those tools are not exclusive to these films. So, of course, I'm hesitant to put forth anything that furthers any association with zealotry or disconnect from reality, but that hesitation would be a disservice to the filmmakers and these films. It would be pretense to pretend that there was no intersection between religion and these works. If you're a longtime listener, that's already well established, but if you still think it's reading too much into something unintended by the filmmakers, here are a few clips just to clear up any confusion. Writer David Goyer. He's kind of this strange combination of Old Testament and New Testament because his origin is sort of this amalgamation of the Christ story, but also the Moses story. He's Moses-like in that he's literally kind of the last of his people who's put in this little pod just like, you know, Moses was put in, you know, the basket of reeds and put down the river. 
he's Christ-like because it's sort of like God's son and he has to sacrifice himself and introduce himself to the world and certainly that's something that we play on in this movie. What was the biggest help for you? It wasn't the comic books. One of the things, really? I mean, it started with the comic books, but then I thought, well, what references were Siegel and Schuster drawing upon when they created Superman? So I read some early interviews with them back in the 70s and they talked about the New Testament and the Old Testament and so I said, okay, fine. I'm going to try to roll back the clock and get back to the original DNA of where this character came from. Much later in this episode, we'll see what that biblical influence means and that he's not simply playing lip service to the idea. Like the marketing campaign directed at the churches seemed to be from its fairly thin materials. And I just wondered how where to underline the religious resonances of the character. Yeah, I mean, look, the metaphors, the sort of relationship, the Christ story and the Superman story, it's not a thing that I, I didn't make that up. That's a thing that's existed within the canon forever. But it was also a thing that we really wanted to make sure that we included a little bit because we felt like in order to complete his mythology, it would be uncool to deny that super important part of him, which has been denied kind of a little bit in the other films. And I really felt like if we did it right, it wouldn't get in the way of the movie, but in a weird way would enhance the mythology. And, and that's really what we were trying to do. Of course, note that these influences aren't evangelical or didactic in the sense that this is what you should believe and follow, but instead an acknowledgement of their influence, integration into culture, and the impact of their mythologies and narratives upon our modern lives and context. Snyder has given more print interviews on the subject, which you can find in the show notes, but I want to read his introduction to the Man of Steel art book, which goes criminally underquoted. I wish I had this in his own voice, but here goes, quote, The single point at which everything we know and everything we question exists in one place. The ultimate crossroads in a journey of discovering the true meaning of self. The collision point of science and religion, the tangible and ethereal, physical and philosophical. The place where a question that may never truly have an answer can be embodied in a singular character. In many ways, that is the why of Superman. In my mind, the coolest part of the character of Clark Kent is that his alien origins, combined with his Smallville upbringing, simultaneously make him entirely relatable and completely mysterious. This duality allows us to look at ourselves through the prism of Clark, embracing that which we understand and forcing us to acknowledge and accept that which we don't yet comprehend. Although the challenges facing Clark may be more interplanetary than our own, the reality is that those sometimes overwhelming difficulties we each struggle to reconcile with as we grow, especially throughout our youth, often feel just as immense as being from another planet. 75 years ago, Kandor and Kansas collided, giving birth to one of the most storied characters of all time, Superman. A single character who calls into question everything we believe. Whether it's the belief that we humans are the apex of an evolutionary process, the pinnacle of God's creation, or anything else along the complex spectrum where science and theisms grapple for space, Superman challenges all of those ideas to their core. He forces us to look at ourselves as individuals and mankind as a whole through the filter of a being who looks very much like us, but who has the physical strength and abilities of a god. Yet despite his corporeal strengths, he is not omniscient and therefore must venture out into the world on his own journey 
of self-discovery, no more able to see the future than any of us, and in many ways much less aware of his past than most, he is in essence a lost god, a deity forced to walk the earth alone seeking his own personal truth while inadvertently calling into question the very truths the rest of mankind cling to so tightly. I was enthralled by the amazing opportunity to place this helplessly divine figure firmly into our imperfect world. It was a chance to tell the complicated story of a struggling savior, a reluctant messiah in a modern way, an opportunity to carefully deconstruct the classical godlike character who we have often perceived as aspirational, but also distant and divine at times. Allowing the audience to walk alongside Clark during his formative years as a child, a teen, and ultimately a young man creates a bond that perseveres even as that man becomes mythological in stature. That initial kinship is what lets us humans experience the transformative process of the character from an incredibly close proximity, ultimately helping us both understand and relate to the evolution of Clark Kent into Superman. End quote. Oh my goodness, there's so much packed into there. But the introduction continues and Snyder goes on with gratitude about the opportunity and his immersion into decades of the legend and lore. But this introduction underscores three intentions rooted in mythology, deity, and empathy. Religion provides a lens for those first two. And over the course of this episode, hopefully you'll see that last intention as well. So the inspiration for this episode came from a reference or illustration Zack Snyder would sometimes use in his interviews. Here's one example from a San Diego Comic-Con 2007 interview. Quote, I always say treat the graphic novel like it was written 2000 years ago, and it is an illuminated text, and we are disciples of this religion, and we have to make sure that we don't get burned at the stake for heresy after we make the movie. End quote. <laughs> That comment made over a decade ago was regarding Watchmen. The following clip refers to Man of Steel. You have to go and find the why of it. You know, it's like an illuminated text. There's a reason why those monks have been redrawing that same thing for a thousand years. So the context is slightly different in these two examples. In the first case, Watchmen is the sacred text to be adhered to or face the consequences. But in the latter case, Snyder is less concerned with adherence than he is with the predisposition to do so. As he says, you have to go and find the why of it. He doesn't take adherence for granted, but he wants to know the reason for its stature. Why is it elevated, revered, sacred, repeated, and enduring? Why do these texts and practices last for thousands of years? Well, to start with, you have to know what he means by an illuminated text or manuscript. Consider the following BBC documentary excerpts. The modern-day book is a commodity. Mechanically reproduced in large print runs, each text is an object cloned for mass consumption. But once upon a time, when every book was unique and handmade, the word had an aura of magic and power about it. For more than a thousand years, illuminated manuscripts brought scriptures, stories, myths and legends to life. In their glittering pages are preserved the ideas, the religious beliefs and the many mysteries of the medieval age. Illuminated manuscripts flourished between the 6th and the 16th centuries and were among the most precious possessions of the time. They're now valuable collector's items, many worth millions apiece. 
The reason why manuscripts are important is that they contain most of what survives of the art and the culture of Europe for the best part of a thousand years before the 16th century. They contain the finest examples of medieval art because most painting of the Middle Ages has been lost. Frescoes have, have faded or, or crumbled. The tapestries hardly exist. Without the manuscript book, we would know nothing of Plato or Aristotle. We would know nothing of Jesus or Muhammad, or at least very little. Strictly speaking, for a manuscript to be described as illuminated, it should have decoration of gold or silver, although the term is now widely used to describe any brightly illustrated text. One of the most unashamedly opulent of such manuscripts was the Pontifical, a manual for bishops giving guidance on special services. This one was created for the Bishop of Metz. I love the spectacular abstract backgrounds, especially this dazzling diamond lattice of gold and blue. It imbues you with a sense of the sacred. In the book's pages, the world seems to shimmer with spiritual energy, the artist's way of expressing the ineffable mysteries of the divine. So manuscripts were labor-intensive, each uniquely crafted, guarding art and history, highlighted with gold, created initially as acts of devotion, piety, and sincerity, but later representing opulence, excess, and power. Also, a quick footnote, of course, there are non-Western illuminated texts as well. See the show notes. Well, there's three points I want to raise. Illuminated texts as comic books, the interaction between the text and art and what lasts, and finally, the impact of this on Man of Steel specifically. So my first point is a little tongue-in-cheek, but let's look at the illuminated manuscript as a comic book precursor. It contains, or originally contained, a picture of each of the four writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together with a series of almost comic book pictures of scenes that were unique to each of the Gospels. We think of the comic strip as something that's probably invented around about 1900 with the invention of the comic and the annual and that sort of thing. Well, in fact not. There's a whole honourable history of the comic strip. The stories, the biblical stories, how will you make them clear to people who can't read? You create a comic strip. Not just the accessibility and storytelling of comics, but many exemplars of illuminated illustrations are boldly colored in blue, red, and gold, and spring off the page, making Superman's color scheme seem practically inevitable. If you grew up in America, you might mistakenly think that the medium was somehow built, somehow inherently constructed in such a way that the love affair between comics and superheroes were somehow inevitable. Just like in in 1962, somebody could think that the love affair between movies and big spectacular musicals was inevitable. <laughs> it wasn't. There, there was nothing There was nothing that said that movies had to go in that direction. It's just that's just the cul-de-sac that they wound up with. <laughs> okay, okay. That was Scott McCloud of Understanding Comics fame. Here, he elaborates on his definition of comics. Can you rattle it off the top of your head what the definition was from the book? My mentor, Will Eisner, had used the term sequential art. 90% of the time, you can just say sequential art. People get it. And what I came up with was juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence. Some people thought that, you know, we had to stop calling them comics and start calling them juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence. I said, no, 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 no. That's, you just, you do that once and then you go back to calling them comics. People put a lot of value on labels mm -hmm. and a lot of folks, they get all up in arms that, oh, they're calling them graphic novels these days. They're putting on airs. And it's like, no, 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 you can call it comics if you want. I was just saying that comics, we need to allow the word to take on new meanings. Mm -hmm. 
And every art form has different modes of dress, right? You can read about something in film comment, and then you can go to the Academy of Motion Pictures to see the awards ceremony, and then you can go out and see a movie the next day. You're using these different words as different ways of illuminating the different functions, the different styles, the different moods that come out of that art form. But it's okay. You can still call them movies. You can still call them comics. So by this definition, comics and sequential art have existed before the dawn of history. But let me propose that the illuminated manuscripts may still lay claim to being the first comic books. Emphasis on books. Calfskin, or vellum as it's known, was introduced in the 4th century AD. Before then, manuscripts, a word which literally means written by hand, were made from stone, clay, and later, papyrus scrolls. But clay was heavy and scrolls were unwieldy. So, in the 4th century, the rectangular format known as the Codex emerged. The book, as we know it now, was born. Man of Steel fans will, of course, respond to the word codex, but more on that in a bit. As we raised in our Wonder Woman episode, Diana would have read from scrolls on Themyscira. But a book provides a far better way to index, reference, and travel back and forth through the material at will. Here, Zach describes the unique experience of reading Watchmen as a graphic novel compared to film. The cool thing about the squid in the graphic novel, for me, was when I turned that page when I was reading the graphic novel for the first time, and you turn that page and you come to the squid, mm. your, your brain does go like, what the... <laughs> and the cool thing about the graphic novel is you can flip back, which you have to do. Because mm. if you get to that page and you've got everything up to there, you're a genius. And you're like, you know, you have no business, like, you know, on any threads talking about it because you <laughs> should be teaching a course at Harvard. So you literally have to, like, flip back and go like, okay, you're right. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay. And there, that's a cool discovery. The graphic novel then suddenly has like, there's another thing in it that you didn't really understand until you, you kind of have to go back and do it. You can't really do that in a movie. I mean, you can, but what that entails is like flashing back or cutting again or having someone explain what you don't have to do in that moment, right? So in the graphic novel, you flip the page, bang, you have that image. It's designed to read linearly, right? Now I continue, right? But the physical thing that happens is you go back, you stop, you go back, you get the information to make that work for you, and then you continue. Now, so they don't really interrupt the flow of the narrative because they don't have to, because you're going to do it. Exactly. It's a choice you make. (laughs) It's a choice you make. Where if I had to do that, it's a clumsy tool for a filmmaker to have to, like, at that point, you're in the middle of the most dramatic part of the movie, and you're like, oh, wait, 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 let me just go back and fill you in on why this is happening this way. It's interesting how the ability to move through a fixed narrative at will makes us a little like Dr. Manhattan, able to experience and know it all, but unable to change any of it. However, you also see the seeds of a storytelling sensibility that is less concerned with a single simply told linear narrative, but instead densely layered material that needs to be revisited, cross-referenced, compared, analyzed, studied, and chewed to appreciate fully. Zach mourns the inability to have that fleeting first experience with fresh eyes again. But at the same time, he points out that it's more than first impressions. The value and genius of the work, worthy of being taught at Harvard, comes out in successive readings. He also, somewhat ironically, alludes to some of the mechanics which make the Martha scene in BVS so difficult for some. But getting back to appreciation, it's clear that he aspires for his films to benefit from repeated and thoughtful viewing, like Watchmen or a sacred text. 
Each of these mediums can produce single-use fare, but Watchmen is the very antithesis of the disposable superhero comic book. An illuminated text is the most precious embodiment of a writing intended for continual meditation. And likewise, his films are more than just two hours of escapism. Works with this latter quality may be a part of why they last, which is my next point. What's fascinating about illuminated manuscripts is the interaction between the art and the text over time. Initially, it's the text which is precious, perfect, and to be preserved. As manuscripts are literally manually written, each is unique and one of a kind, but the text is a fixed reproduction, an exact, unchanging copy. The illumination serves only to bring glory, honor, and attention to the value of the text. If the text wasn't treasured outside of opulence, you wouldn't illuminate it. However, the illumination ends up being an expression of individuality that is somewhat apart from the text. The illuminations end up embodying each artist's own talents, perspectives, and even foibles. No two artists express the text in exactly the same fashion. Some are more capable than others, some more devout than others, some seem practically at odds with the work, and some were literally illiterate. Yes, you get the official illustration of the scenes from the Bible, but what you also get are all these wonderful marginalia where the artist has just let his fantasy flow freely. Why medieval books have marginalia which are funny and rude and satirical is a, a burning question because to our eyes, in a sense, we have a rather solemn view of religion as something sort of slightly sanitized. But clearly in the Middle Ages, the whole question of different categories applying, different boundaries or lack of boundaries applying, I think is, is, is very relevant. I mean, when you see a bunny playing an organ, uh, very happily, and there's a dog pumping the organ at the back, and the dog looks really fed up. Why was this found funny? There's a lot about rabbits and, and animals in these books, and that's because people used animals as metaphors for, for human situations. What a dear little book the Macclesfield Psalter is. It's a mad little book. The person who's illuminating that seems to be on his mobile phone to Hieronymus Bosch the whole time. I've never seen grotesques like that. Some of them have got the face of the tax collector only it's on somebody's bottom. That's just great. When we're trying to come to terms with what the Middle Ages were like, there seems to have been some way that people could encompass immense devotion with an inversion of that devotion so that you could parody it, mock it, turn monks into monkeys. You could show fornication, defecation. You could show the whole gamut of bodily functions all round the edges of what was an incredible act of devotion and piety. I'll skip the clips, but in the show notes, you can find stories about giant snails, homicidal rabbits, and even Jedi Master Yoda appearing in 14th century illuminated manuscripts. <laughs> The point is that illuminations bring some personal expression to the text, but individually they don't shift it. And yet, hundreds of years later, once reproduction of the text becomes trivial, and in that sense the text becomes fungible, it is these unique illuminations which make the manuscript appreciated and precious. 
We turn to them not for the words which we can find easily elsewhere, but for the unique and extravagant expression exclusive to this art. Now imagine that applied to the superhero mythos and any individual expression of it. It's because Superman is an icon and an institution that we bother to illuminate him. That's why he gets the merchandise, the TV shows, and the big budget movies. Zack once remarked that the casting of Man of Steel was like a dream because everyone on his wish list agreed because of the icon, Superman's significance. However, the Superman mythos is this sort of abstract thing that exists in the collective consciousness, somewhat immune to the whims of any one embodiment. So like the illuminated manuscripts, while the mythos is what fuels the creation of the illumination, it is the specifics of any given illumination which make us reflect back and appreciate it in particular. Most times, you don't revisit an illuminated text in order to read the Bible. You are there for what went into the illumination, the technique, artistry, history, and so on. And that can include an appreciation for how it interacts with or was inspired by the text, but the emphasis is on the illumination. And this is similar to any long-standing or prolific mythos like Superman or Batman. If I go back to watch Batman 66, I'm not looking for the entire mythos to be represented. I may be there for Batman generally or broadly, like a person with religious devotion might give attention to illuminated manuscripts, but I watch Batman 66 specifically for Adam West, garish colors, wacky villains, and nonsensical plots, not expecting the whole of the Batman mythos to be presented comprehensively. Strangely though, that's not how we approach a lot of modern mythology, where we bring a checklist of expectations. And sometimes this has become so extreme and formulaic that we can populate entire bingo cards with our predictions. Imagine if every film was designed to fulfill a predetermined role in our society. An origin story, a safe sequel, followed by a team-up film, and so on. What if that formula lost something precious? The element of choice, of chance. What if a film dreamed of becoming something other than what society had intended? What if our filmmakers aspired to something greater? <laughs> As I said in an earlier episode, I'm dying to talk about rebellion in these films because there's an incredibly interesting interplay between what's holy and heretical, conformity versus individuality, consensus versus originality, etc. Isn't it strange that critics try to judge illuminations, which we approach and admire for their specificity and uniqueness, on the basis of how far they diverge, differ, depart, or detail the collective mythos or committee checklist? Where would we be without renegades and reformers who challenge the status quo and come not from establishment, entitlement, or popular authority, but from a minority position as an exception, exile, or oddity? But like I said, we can discuss this all day, so let's just quickly look at what endures and lasts. Here's Roger Nelson, a scientist and director of the WIPP project. He's tasked by the federal government to come up with safeguards to protect radioactive waste 10,000 years into the future. Well, name anything that has persisted for 10,000 years, any institution. There isn't any. The, the record probably is something like the Catholic Church or the, or the core of the Jewish religion, which tells us something about what really lasts. In fact, the team proposed religion as a vehicle for carrying its warnings into the future. 
Linguist Thomas Sibiak proposed creating an atomic priesthood where an exclusive political group would use its own rituals and myths to preserve information about the radioactive areas. <laughs> As an aside, I love this stuff. I'm a fan of the Highlander mythos. And part of the reason that Diana's immortality in these films is so potentially interesting to me. But okay, back on track. Judaism is credited as the first religion to espouse ethical monotheism, which is a term of art referring to their god as the source of standard morality and ethical principles, distinguishable from other earlier monotheistic belief systems where god is supreme only in power, not ethics, morals, or principles. As we've discussed in prior episodes, this belief would percolate into Greek philosophy and give rise to the Logos and the problem of evil, which gets presented to us in BVS by Lex Luthor, but is entirely informed and framed by religion as a cultural and mythological lens. Imagine how irrelevant Lex's problem is outside of ethical monotheism. If the supreme power is permitted to be evil, there's no quandary. Or if there is no supreme power and Superman is just one of many within a polytheistic reality, then it's irrelevant how good one god is if others differ. And I can already imagine you raising the rest of the League and metahumans in protest, but remember, Lex is not concerned with actual reality, Clark Joe, but the public story, the Superman. Anyways, the point is that one of the world's oldest religions took off and lasted, not doing what everyone else was doing, but instead arising as an oddity, an exception, in exile as a minority. When the framers of Judaism compiled their holy texts, they were in Babylonian exile, powerless put upon marginalized minority foreigners. It's from this perspective that they vaunted the values that we talked about last episode, to protect the oppressed, the widow, orphan, immigrant, and poor. This oddball religion doing something different ends up lasting and expanding into the Abrahamic religions, each coming out of reforms to the status quo. A cult comes to dominate culture and the course of world history. I think that we have a terrible misconception about popularity. I think that often we define popularity in a majoritarian way. We say that in order for something to be popular, most people have to like it. A majority of the population has to like it. But think about this. If a book sells one million copies in a year, it is a runaway bestseller that by definition, 99.5% of Americans did not buy. The biggest movie of 2016, Rogue One, the Star Wars film, made enough money for about 35 to 40% of American adults to have bought a ticket and seen it. That means the vast majority of Americans did not see the most popular movie. You could say the same for television. You could say the same for music, that lots of things that we consider popular are not majoritarily popular at all. They aren't mainstream by this old-fashioned definition. Instead, they are cults. That culture itself is cults from top to bottom. It is increasingly in this moment now where the mainstream has been completely shattered and has been totally nichified, that culture is cults all the way down. And I think that in thinking about this from a marketing standpoint, and you're thinking about your total addressable market, your total addressable market is not America. It's not the world. It's not any enormous group of people. Your total addressable market is probably really, really small. And rather than go big with a general message that you hope is going to embrace everybody, rather embrace the idea that the mainstream is dead, that it's all cults, and that you have to find your cult and hit them very, very clearly with a message that is cultish, that says you are special because the mainstream is wrong. Remember, that is the definition of what cultish thinking is. It's a positive rebellion against an illegitimate mainstream. 
So in order for people to feel like a message is reaching them, it helps for that message to tell them not only who they are, but who they're not, how they are different, how they're special, and how the vast majority of people, how the amorphous mainstream doesn't get them. In fact, it makes much more sense to try to reach 0.2, 0.01% of them with a message that is really clear and very specific and very special, and understand that even if I get this microscopic percentage of the total addressable market to love what I'm doing, that is popularity. That was Derek Thompson, senior editor of The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity. He argues for specificity over consensus. At the time Action Comics number 1 was published, it took off not because it clung to conventions by providing yet another anthology of detective tales, cowboy adventures, or of other prevailing pulp plots. Superman stood out as something different. Action Comics number 1 originally sold 200,000. A certain petition has nearly as many signatures. Siegel and Schuster created Superman, started with Action Comics number 1. No one had ever heard of superheroes when Action Comics 1 came out. And these two guys really created something completely brand new. Action Comics went on to spawn the entire comics industry and the superhero genre. The passion of the plurality is more important than the platonic ideal of popularity, and arguably that ideal may not even exist. There may not be a platonic ideal of Superman for everyone, given 80 years of different incarnations. Instead, you customize and cater to specifics. I decided instead I would talk about someone who I think has done as much to make Americans happy as perhaps anyone over the last 20 years. A man who is a great personal hero of mine, someone by the name of Howard Moskowitz, who is most famous for reinventing spaghetti sauce. Um, and Howard is very interested in measuring things. And he graduated with his doctorate from Harvard and he set up a little consulting shop in White Plains, New York. In fact, Campbell's Soup is where Howard made his reputation. Campbell's made Prego. And Prego in the early 80s was struggling next to ragu, which was the dominant spaghetti sauce of the 70s and 80s. So they came to Howard and they said, fix us. And he got together with the Campbell's Soup Kitchen and he made 45 varieties of spaghetti sauce. And he varied them according to every conceivable way that you can vary tomato sauce. By sweetness, by level of garlic, by tartness, by sourness, by tomatoiness, by visible solids. My favorite term in, in, this, in the spaghetti sauce business. Every conceivable way you can vary spaghetti sauce, he varied spaghetti sauce. And then he took this whole raft of 45 spaghetti sauces and he went on the road. At the end of that process, after doing it for months and months, he had a mountain of data about how the American people feel about spaghetti sauce. And then he analyzed the data. Now, did he look for the most popular variety of spaghetti sauce? No, Howard doesn't believe that there is such a thing. Instead, he looked at the data and he said, let's see if we can group all these different data points into clusters. Let's see if they congregate around certain ideas. And sure enough, if you sit down and you analyze all this data on spaghetti sauce, you realize that all Americans fall into one of three groups. There are people who like their spaghetti sauce plain, there are people who like their spaghetti sauce spicy, and there are people who like it extra chunky. And of those three facts, the third one was the most significant. Because at the time, in the early 1980s, if you went to a supermarket, you would not find extra chunky spaghetti sauce. Prego turned to Howard and they said, are you telling me that one third of Americans crave extra chunky spaghetti sauce, and yet no one is servicing their needs? And he said yes. 
And Prego then went back and completely reformulated their spaghetti sauce and came out with a line of extra chunky that immediately and completely took over the spaghetti sauce business in this country. And over the next 10 years, they made $600 million off their line of extra chunky sauces. And everyone else in the industry looked at what Howard had done and they said, oh my God, we've been thinking all wrong. And that's when you started to get seven different kinds of vinegar and 14 different kinds of mustard and 71 different kinds of olive oil. And that's Howard's doing. That is Howard's gift to the American people. Now, why is that important? <clears throat> it is, in fact, enormously important. I'll explain to you why. Because what Howard did is he fundamentally changed the way the food industry thinks about making you happy. Assumption number one in the food industry used to be that the way to find out what people want to eat, what will make people happy, is to ask them. And for years and years and years and years, Ragu and Prego would have focus groups and they would sit all you people down and they would say, what do you want in a spaghetti sauce? Tell us what you want in a spaghetti sauce. And for all those years, 20, 30 years, through all those focus group sessions, no one ever said they wanted extra chunky, even though at least a third of them deep in their hearts actually did. <laughs> People don't know what they want, right? As Howard loves to say, the mind knows not what the tongue wants. It's a mystery. And a critically important step in understanding our own desires and tastes is to realize that we cannot always explain what we want deep down. If I asked all of you, for example, in this room, what you want in a coffee, you know what you'd say? Every one of you would say, I want a dark, rich, hearty roast. So people always say when you ask them what they want in a coffee, what do you like? Dark, rich, hearty roast. <laughs> what percentage of you actually like a dark, rich, hearty roast? According to Howard, somewhere between 25 and 27% of you. Most of you like milky, weak coffee. <laughs> but you will never ever say to someone who asks you what you want that I want a milky, weak coffee. <laughs> and perhaps the most important thing that Howard did is Howard confronted the notion of the platonic dish. What do I mean by that? For the longest time in the food industry, there was a sense that there was one way, a perfect way, to make a dish. Because the chef at Chez Panisse has a platonic notion about red tail sashimi. This is the way it ought to be. And she serves it that way time and time again. And if you quarrel with her, she will say, you know what, you're wrong. This is the best way it ought to be in this restaurant. Now that same idea fueled the commercial food industry as well. They had a notion, a platonic notion of what tomato sauce was. And why were we attached to that? Because we thought that what it took to make people happy was to provide them with the most culturally authentic tomato sauce, A. And B, we thought that if we gave them the culturally authentic tomato sauce, then they would embrace it. And that's what would please the maximum number of people. In other words, people in the cooking world were looking for cooking universals. They were looking for one way to treat all of us. And there's good reason for them to be obsessed with the idea of universals because all of science through the 19th century and much of the 20th was obsessed with universals. Psychologists, medical scientists, economists were all interested in finding out the rules that govern the way all of us behave. But that changed, right? That's, what is the great revolution? in science of the last 10, 15 years. It is the movement from the search for universals to the understanding of variability. When we pursue universal principles in food, we aren't just making an error, we are actually doing ourselves a massive disservice. And the example he used was coffee. If I were to ask all of you to try and come up with a brand of coffee, a brew that made all of you happy, and then I ask you to rate that coffee, the average score in this room for coffee would be about 60 on a scale of zero to 100. If, however, you allowed me to break you into coffee clusters, maybe three or four coffee clusters, and I could make coffee just for each of those individual clusters, your scores would go from 60 to 75 or 78. The difference between coffee at 60 and coffee at 78 is a difference between coffee that makes you wince and coffee that makes you deliriously happy. 
That is the final and I think most beautiful lesson of Howard Moskowitz, that in embracing the diversity of human beings, we will find a sure way to true happiness. Thompson and Gladwell touch on similar points. You shouldn't put all your stock into what people say they want. Thompson will tell you the majority says that they don't want and won't watch Star Wars films. Gladwell would say even your anticipated market incorrectly elucidate their sincere tastes, refusing to admit to a preference for milky weak coffee. Likewise, both say that we're happiest servicing the specific and particular instead of pursuing a platonic universal ideal. This is corroborated by the shift away from attempting to find the average audience. More on that in the show notes. So as a bit of application and influence on these films, let's look at the Kryptonian Codex. Already in Kryptonian culture, we see a heavy emphasis on the text text is elevated to a sacred level, inscribed into everything as ornament and imbuing all things with meaning and significance. It's almost a reverse illumination. Instead of using illustration and gold to show the significance of the text, here anything of meaning, worth, and significance is illuminated with sacred text and sayings. Superman's shield and suit the council chamber, and of course, the codex containing the registry of citizens. The function of the codex is to guide and dictate society, something that Jor-El didn't agree with, but nonetheless sought to preserve. Remember that Cal never learns that he contains the codex. That information is learned by Jack Sir outside of his presence, and Jor-El never tells Cal that he has the codex. Remember that the codex's function in Kryptonian society is in conjunction with the Genesis Chamber, but Jor-El never tells Cal to activate, preserve, protect, or use the Genesis Chamber. Instead, his only comment is a warning. Nonetheless, Jor wanted the codex preserved. Why? If you don't believe in Kryptonian society as it is, founded on the Codex, why would you preserve the Codex? Well, a present-day perspective on illuminated texts give us a little insight into why. While devotion and belief may add to your admiration and appreciation, it is unnecessary to be a believer to appreciate an illuminated text. Dr. Christopher DeHamel holds degrees with Oxford, Cambridge, and St. John's University and is one of the world's foremost experts on medieval manuscripts. Here's a short excerpt of his unbridled enthusiasm. I want to know everything about a medieval manuscript. First of all, there is the text, I mean, what it actually says, and that's one thing, and we can read them, that's one thing. But I want to know who made the book, and when, and where, and how, and why, and who it was, and how long it took, and what it cost, and where the paints came from, and why they painted, or why they didn't, if it has pictures, where it's been, how it was shelved, how it was read, why they copied it, what they copied it from, how it survived, where it's been since the Middle Ages, when it was sold, why it was sold, how it's reached its present library. Um, There is no limit to what I want to know about a book. I've never actually licked a manuscript, but I bet they've got a wonderful They probably have got a wonderful taste. And I can explain this entirely in terms of physics, but walking into the cathedral, holding the book open with this very, very tissue-fine parchment and 5,000 people singing with those deep organ noises, the pages vibrated and you could feel it. It was as if um, the book was humming in time with the music and it was, if I was open to a miraculous experience, I would have said the book was singing. You can turn the pages, you touch them, you are handling, you are face-to-face with something that's a 1,000 years old. They are a combination of art and literature and history, and I think they're wonderful. (laughs) He may lack faith, but he is unquestionably passionate, and his experience is transcendent. 
That wonder and curiosity and joy about diving deep makes him a man after my own heart. <laughs> and you can imagine something similar with Jor-El and the Codex. Even if he doesn't believe in the society that they created, he still values the bloodlines of Krypton enough to see them preserved. He doesn't want them to influence Kal-El's upbringing or adult decision-making, but he doesn't want their important information lost. To me, this is an extension of his desire for Kal-El to be a bridge, equal parts human and Kryptonian. If he tells Kal-El about the Codex, it presents like Pandora's box and pushes him to use it. However, by leaving it alone, the Codex arises only when Kal is curious about his own makeup and investigates it with tools provided by human allies. And in that context, deciding what to do with it or about it is a mutual, cooperative collaboration between mankind and the last son of Krypton. Maybe. Who knows? The film is essentially silent as to this, and while some consider this an unforced error, I believe it's intentional ambiguity. And that's a good launching point to leave illuminated manuscripts and talk about literary techniques and analysis. There are countless ways to analyze a work, but four prevailing ones are to 1. Look at the work on its face, 2. Try and determine authorial intent, 3. Evaluate the context, or 4. Audience response. Going by the work itself is the best lens for evaluating logical contradiction, because often those tend to be imported from outside the work by other renditions or subjective interpretation as to the intention or context. Going by authorial intent, we tried to get at what were the goals and intentions of the artist, especially as applied to Man of Steel. It is understanding that Snyder is intentionally and explicitly chasing something more mythological than just a rote repetition of the collective consciousness checklist of Superman trappings and tropes. He explicitly calls Superman the embodiment of existential questions and seeks to serve that rather than a mechanical reproduction of the most popular, least confrontational, safest, crowd-pleasing platonic, pre-programmed Superman concept. Given that that was expressed as an intentional choice, it makes absurd arguments that Snyder does not understand Superman. When someone is not intending to deliver committee Superman, how can you judge them on their failure to do so? Avoiding that approach is not evidence that one is ignorant of it. From a practical standpoint, if I'm paid millions of dollars given unlimited archival access under the weight of an icon, and I know that my work is going to go on for ages. You think I would forge ahead with no understanding of the central character or his premise? Of course not. You steep yourself in it and come to it with your own particular perspective. Alright, so we covered the work itself and authorial intent. We're left with context and response. Going by context is itself contextual. It can mean historical context within the story or during the creation of the piece. It can mean how it responds and reacts to other works, and it can mean real-world facts which focus the narrative. For example, the historical context of Man of Steel is that Clark's life overlaps with 9-11 in a film intending to take place in an analog to the real world, and that creates a question, where was Superman on 9-11, which Man of Steel solves by keeping him flightless until 2013. Even if Clark was aware of the attack as it happened, without flight or super speed, he couldn't be there to meaningfully intervene. If we elaborate on creative context, most discussions 
discussions of Man of Steel find themselves discussing Superman 78, Superman Returns, The Dark Knight, and Warner's cinematic universe ambitions. The reaction to Man of Steel becomes part of the context for Batman v Superman, and so on. Finally, the context of real-world facts is what I often call domain knowledge, or an understanding of reality. For example, nothing in BVS explains how Senate hearings work, but having that domain knowledge or context helps you appreciate the film better. This show has gone over countless examples of science, psychology, literature, philosophy, etc. to improve your understanding of the film with more context. That's why I always say that these films are worth annotating, but also why I say that not every film should be like this. But it's special, amazing, and rewarding when they are. The hidden sayings in Superman's suit and Wonder Woman's sword have no meaning in the work, no ability to translate or understand them as anything but decoration, but they provide illumination as to authorial intent and tie the work to the context and intentions of Joseph Campbell's monomyth. Okay, that's context. The last common way is simply audience reaction, which is purely your subjective response. An example that I've given in the past is when a couple refers to a song as their song. None of that additional meaning was intended, internal, or contextual. It's simply conferred upon the song by you and yours. Audience response is what it is, and accorded only appropriate weight. A lifelong vegan's perspective on a steakhouse should probably be considered differently. Now I've explained all these mechanisms, the how, but I haven't explained the why. What is the purpose of all this analysis? Why bother to chew our food? John Green gives us a crash course on English literature. Writing, or at least good writing, is an outgrowth of that urge to use language to communicate complex ideas and experiences between people. And that's true whether you're reading Shakespeare or bad vampire fiction. Reading is always an act of empathy. It's always an imagining of what it's like to be someone else. So when Shakespeare uses iambic pentameter or Salinger uses a red hunting cap, they aren't doing this so that your English teachers will have something to torture you with. They're doing it, at least if they're doing it on purpose, so the story can have a bigger and better life in your mind. But for the record, the question of whether they're doing it on purpose is not a very interesting question. Green makes an aside about the interactive process. Dear authorial intent, as an author, let me speak to you directly. You don't matter! Look, I'm not willing to go as far as the postmodernists and say that the author is dead because that would make me very nervous. However, the author is not that important. Whether an author intended a symbolic resonance to exist in her book is irrelevant. All that matters is whether it's there because the book does not exist for the benefit of the author. The book exists for the benefit of you. If we as readers can have a bigger and richer experience with the world as a result of reading a symbol and that symbol wasn't intended by the author, we still win! Yes, inevitably, reading is a conversation between an author and a reader. But give yourself some power in that conversation, reader. Go out there and make a world! Best wishes, John Green. Then he comes back to the literary analysis. Here's the thing. It is extremely hard to get other people to feel what we are feeling. Like, you may have experienced this in your own life. Say my college girlfriend broke up with me, and she did. I want to explain what I'm feeling to my best friend in the entire world, so I say, I am completely obliterated. My heart is broken. In fact, my heart is shattered into a million pieces. I'm using the techniques of hyperbole, in the case of obliteration, and metaphor, in the case of my broken heart, to try to describe the things that are happening inside of me. But because I'm not using particularly 
compelling or original figurative language, my friend may struggle to empathize with me. And this is my best friend in the entire world! Now imagine that you're trying to communicate far more complicated and nuanced experiences and emotions, and instead of just trying to communicate them to your best friend, you're trying to talk to strangers. So I'm gonna ask you to read critically, to look closely at a text and pay attention to the subtle ways the author is trying to communicate the full complexity of human experience. I'm asking you to read critically because by understanding language you will one, have a fuller understanding of lives other than your own, which two, will help you to be more empathetic, and thereby three, help you to avoid getting dumped by that young woman in the first place. Although more importantly, four, reading critically and attentively can give you the linguistic tools to share your own story with more precision. Wow. I love that, especially the points on empathy. Meaningful works don't just divert, aren't just consumed, but increase our empathy and expand our ability to relate to others. This is literally Snyder's intentions with Man of Steel, as quoted earlier, quote, allowing the audience to walk alongside Clark, helping us to both understand and relate to the evolution of Clark Kent into Superman. End quote. As a more metatextual comment, it is the approach of this show and a philosophy to life that being so armed with all these tools, knowledge, capacities, and power to then use them for further understanding, empathy, and good rather than to tear down, tear apart, denigrate, or destroy. Because these are tools, knowledge, and power, and they can be used for good or ill. It's our choice. And the great tragedy of contemporary literary analysis is that it is almost universally used to self-aggrandize while intentionally and willfully misunderstanding art, artists, and audiences. Your analysis can be sophisticated and technically accurate, but what does it profit you to use all of that to only create distance, put up walls, to insult, and intentionally callous yourself to others? This is common whenever a work intentionally employs abstraction or ambiguity. It's easy to criticize that work technically, to claim a lack of clarity, a failure of execution, a gap in expression. These are all sound critiques in and of themselves applied to a abstract, unconventional, non-classic piece of art, but they act only to harden the heart of the critic against understanding. No attempt at empathy with the creator, with their intentions, or the positive effect fans feel is made. And it's such a sad and small way to look at the world, solely through the lens of what you already know, already understand, already feel, and already believe, instead of trying to understand and appreciate someone other than you. Confession, I was not a Zack Snyder fan. I was not excited that he was going to do the next Superman film. However, in pursuing an understanding of his works, I've absolutely come to appreciate, respect, and admire his approach. Not exclusively and in isolation. It's not as if I'm ruined for any other approaches. Instead, it's about fully appreciating the work as intended. Not all works are intended for scrutiny, analysis, or meditation, as Joss Whedon sings. Please welcome... Mr. Joss Whedon. A caveman painted on a cave. It was a bison, was a fave. The other cave people would rave. They didn't ask why. Why paint a bison if it's dead? When did you choose the color red? What was the process in your head? He told their story. What came before he didn't show We're not supposed to And he's just a door we open if 
Our lives need lifting. This song itself was hard to write. I cut the bridge to keep it tight. It's kind of slow and doesn't quite advance the story. It's really boring, that's all done. Get on the fun train. Aha! But part of being a literate and empathetic person is understanding when the artist intends us to stop and think. This is Gabriel Garcia Colombo. I make artwork to encourage people to slow down. He makes these installations designed to get people to stop and think. Gabriel says there's a problem with the way most of us view art. Not that we're not going to museums, but when we see art, we rush right by it. Did you know that the human attention span is now only eight seconds? Eight seconds is important because eight seconds is also how people look at art in galleries. If you ever go to a museum these days, you'll notice something, that people walk up to a painting or a sculpture and they'll take a picture with their iPhone and then walk away and take another picture of the next, the next painting. And to me, that's not a really good way of looking at art. But as an artist, I'd rather have people spend time with artwork and slow down. So these are questions that I'm hoping people will start to ask when they spend that much time with a piece. That's really what you want, you want to happen. You want people to be forced to kind of think. Yeah, I want them to ask questions. I want them to think about how their life relates to the piece as well. When is a work asking more of its audience than mere passive consumption? It's a superhero movie that is for adults and has adult ideas in it. It goes way deeper. If you want to, you can tear it apart like a giant onion and keep peeling it until you're you know, at its core. But I think that it's cool to experience it just like when I read the comic book for the first time and I didn't know, no one was telling me like what it's about or you know, the why of it. You come to it fresh. And sometimes I wish I had that experience. You know, I would love to see the movie or read the book for the first time again because that feeling was for me awesome especially when you go into something with this anticipation that it's just a hollywood superhero movie which is what a lot of people will think because they don't know right they see some guys fighting and then when you see the film you actually have this experience of being taken apart those archetypes those mythological shapes whether they be batman or superman or any of superheroes and how they're just like sort of turned around. This isn't finding the secrets of the universe in a gun wrapper or the subversion of authorial intent, but engaging the work as intended. We often hear that studying literature involves finding a deeper meaning to a text. When writing about literary works, we're expected to mentally dive below the surface in order to come back up with big ideas. But you may find yourself looking at the flat page of a book, wondering how deep it can really go. How do we reach those ideas that turn into great essays? Well, there are two crucial thinking steps that can lead us in the right direction. Practicing insight and acknowledging complexity. Insight is the ability to arrive at an intuitive understanding of a big idea using only small clues to get there. If you're practicing insight, you'll be able to use observations about character behavior to figure out their true emotions and motivations. Thinking about all those small clues gives us insight about some of the big abstract ideas within the novel that we can approach in an essay, deeper meaning. The second step to a sophisticated analysis is acknowledging complexity. Let's face it, in both life and literature, situations are complicated due to social forces like relationships, moral codes, personal desires, and power structures. This means that there are, at any given 
time, multiple factors that shape what is true. Explore each facet of your subject carefully and make sure to consider multiple influences on events. Explain the tension of multiple forces that create the story. Here, we see those influential forces at work and we've shown off our ability to understand the complicated nature of the human experience, which again allows us to access those big ideas that reveal the deeper meaning of a story. It's impossible to sit down and write an amazing essay about literature without first thinking about it. Before you hit the keys, go back to the text and fish out the small moments, the complicated moments in the story. Line them up in your mind, practice insight, acknowledge complexity, arrive at some big ideas. Before you know it, the deeper meaning will be close at hand. You can see how these tools and techniques are a sort of power which can be used for empathy or attack. I pity first-year students who take their teachings and use them to bludgeon others as know-it-alls. Whether it's in psychology, philosophy, film, or law, knowledge has empowered them. But that empowerment can come at the expense of empathy if we're unaware. You've done a lot of work looking not just at the forces that give rise to power, these forces of empathy and generosity and kindness, but also what what power does to those forces in turn, that when people acquire power, it seems to change their ability to be empathetic, to be kind. Talk about that. You know, if you look at this social science of power, we get power through the pro-social tendencies that we are endowed with. But then once we feel powerful, or we come from a background of privilege and feeling above others, we lose those tendencies. So there are a lot of studies that show that empathetic practices get you power. So one of my favorites is work by Woolley and colleagues showing it's really the more empathetic individuals that make their team stronger and perform better, right? They're listening well, they're asking good questions, they're paying attention to other people. So empathy makes the team and the individual stronger. And then what we started to show in our lab, and then we just present them some photos of people expressing different emotions with subtle muscle movements around the eyes, like concentration or flirtatious or decisive. And what we find is when you feel powerful, you lose your ability to read emotion in people's facial expressions. So what you're saying in some ways is that we are empathetic to others in part because that's useful to us. We lack power yeah. in, in many situations and being empathetic and being aware of others allows us to navigate our social worlds effectively. But when we perceive ourselves having power and privilege, in some ways we don't need to depend as much as we do on others. We don't need to reach out to others. And so those networks shut down. Yeah, no, really well put because if you think about, for example, somebody who's poor and doesn't have a lot of resources, they're dependent on other people to get to work, to do a little bit of ad hoc childcare or what have you. So you're dependent on others. And out of that state of mutual dependence, you really, with vigilance, attend to other people and are aware of what they're doing. And that produces these empathy benefits coming out of less power. And then the compliment, you, you lose that empathy when you feel less dependent on others and powerful. Links in the show notes for additional studies and consistent findings, including a hidden camera experiment run by Michael Stevens to see who would step up and be a hero seeing someone in need. Scientists have studied heroism. And one thing they have found is that Hispanic and black males are the most likely to intervene. It makes sense, maybe because of the background that we come from. As a minority, we have to defend ourselves. And I think it's a subconscious thing that we do. We had a very small sample size in our demonstration, but we found that people of color were much more likely right. to take action. Why? If you're a minority person, the system is usually your enemy. So you can't say, well, the police will help, or the government will help, or the landlord will help. So it's me or no one. And so you're just more sensitive to people in need. 
The corrupting influence of power is also seen in the New Testament narrative of the Pharisees. Today, the word Pharisee has come to mean a self-righteous person or hypocrite. Historically, they were sages, teachers, historians, and politicians, distinguished by strict observance of traditional and written Judaic law. They were privileged to learn laws meant to bind people together in justice, mercy, and compassion, as we discussed last episode. Instead, the narrative presents the Pharisees of having pretensions of superior sanctity. They would judge, criticize, curse, and condemn the people that they were meant to help with the very tools meant to help them. Instead of using their teachings for greater understanding, empathy, wisdom, compassion, and invitation, they were used to browbeat, label, and exile. And today, so much of criticism is punching down and being the bully. And even worse, it comes from those who have been in our shoes, walked the same walk, and are not so far apart from us. You will share more with one another, as comic fans or genre fans, than the rest of the world who aren't. How tragic is it then to divide over trivialities like publisher, brand, or even costume changes? If you're in the privileged position to be discussing comic book movies at all, compared to those who couldn't for lack of subject matter or can't for want of more pressing priorities, you share in common more in gracious measure than what sets you apart from that person who disagrees with you on comic book movies. Seek common ground before seeking to divide and criticize. So works can foster that common ground and empathy through readily understood renderings, right? If you render a character with specific, recognizable, relatable traits, you will easily empathize. If you render a scene realistically that anyone can relate to, you will empathize. If you render a score such that it recalls past emotion and experience, you will empathize. If you render a plot so that it references our collective consciousness and expectations, you will empathize, and so on and so forth. In fact, most of this is unconscious and involuntary engagement of our mirror neurons, where we are built right down to our DNA to be empathetic and feel what others feel. How do you define body-to-body empathy? I know it must hurt when you smash your hand in a car door, because I have a hand, and I have got it caught somewhere before, even if not in a car door. So my body empathizes with your body because I have had similar sensations myself. I recommend looking at the work by phenomenologist Edith Stein. She has a fantastic idea of shared experience that could certainly apply to movies. In entertainments of various kinds, we live vicariously through the experiences of others. The somatic registration of vertigo from observing the flying acrobat. So phenomenology is a branch of philosophy and it actually meets cognitive science in the work of Vittorio Galesi. His work on mirror neurons is showing us ways that neurologically we understand each other's experiences. Here's what he writes. There are neural mechanisms mediating between the multi-level personal experience we entertain of our lived body and the implicit certainties we simultaneously hold about others. Such personal and body-related experiential knowledge enables us to understand the actions performed by others and to directly decode the emotions and sensations they experience. So based on our past experience of pleasure or pain, and because our brain fires the same nerve signals, we can feel with the hero as if it's happening to us. That's it. 
And note that this is a separate issue from tone or humor, which often get held up as straw men for the alleged disconnect with Snyder's films. To argue that our appreciation of Logan is a triumph of tone over the flawed execution of BDS is a faulty position. Logan renders its characters in painful detail. The scenes are literal, the score emotive, and the plot adheres to conventions and expectations to a fault, literally referencing Shane as it follows in its well-worn footsteps. And as a result, we go along for the ride and we feel what they feel empathetically, which is an accomplishment to be sure. But in another sense, it's also completely conventional empathy, making us involuntarily feel for someone we were predisposed to feel for by our biology regardless. If someone in front of you falls, you wince in empathy as an autonomous reflex, and most films strive to employ that reflex in the audience. However, If our world lacks empathy, it's because most of our situations are not so starkly instinctual, graphic, or automatic. Life doesn't usually present us with the heightened perspective of a film, but mostly incoherent, incomplete information, where empathy must arise as a willful act. BVS does not render its characters fully, or with total endearing sympathy. It's peppered with non-literal dreams. The score is more universally ambient than manipulative, and the plot follows the obscure and unfamiliar revenge tragedy structure instead of the easily digestible and commonplace 3X style. All of these are willful, intentional, and sophisticated decisions showing the pursuit of a different kind of empathy. Not the kind stirred by instinct on a silver platter, but the kind hard fought for as deliberate choice. A reoccurring theme to the approach to these films was to forgo the assumptions, gimmies, and things taken for granted for so long. Yeah, because I felt like in the end, you know, you needed to understand, like at the end of the movie, you basically you're at the beginning. And I think that I really wanted to spend the time to sort of deconstruct everything you know about Superman and then sort of get back to you, sort of explained. And so that the character is no longer just taken for granted or just a a gimme that I wanted it to be. No, he feels, he thinks this, he, yeah, he's an alien. He wears the suit for a reason. All those things that I think, you know, equal the why of Superman. And I think that that's going toward, it's not necessarily, again, like I say, about it being realistic, but just sort of giving us a Superman we can relate to. But why take such an unconventional approach compared to the safe and proven path for connecting with audiences? Surely this is folly if this approach has never worked before, except that it has. Let's go back to the text which underlines our illuminated manuscript illustration and look at characterization in the Bible. In the following clips, Dr. Tim Mackey, who holds a PhD in Hebrew and Jewish studies and is a professor of the Old Testament at Western Seminary, lays out a case for a different form of characterization. We're talking about the tool set that the biblical authors, who are also artists, uh, have. And when it comes to the role of characters in biblical narrative, I think this is actually one of the biggest hurdles that modern, at least modern Western readers have because our narrative tastes through movies and Uh through modern literature have been shaped to expect a certain way the characters are described and developed. And biblical authors just have a really different way of employing characters. And when you've grown up on this literature, it doesn't seem foreign to you. And it sure doesn't seem like children's literature. 
So, Robert Alter, who wrote one of the most significant works on biblical narrative, it's called The Art of Biblical Narrative. He has a couple chapters on the way characters work in biblical narrative. So, he has this great quote. He says, The Greek storytelling tendency of loading the story with details is one that modern literary practice has by and large adopted and developed. So his point is our modern taste for all kinds of descriptive characters, what mm-hmm. they look like, mm-hmm. where they grew up. You know, this whole idea of when you introduce characters. Their inner psyche. Yeah, you're constantly being given a window into their psychology. You get a little mini biography. You're, right? We're just used to all of that yeah. detail. That's the Greek thing. And it, that comes from the Greek Storytelling narrative tradition. tradition. So, he says, precisely for that reason, we have to adjust our habits as readers in order to bring an adequate attentiveness to the different narrative maneuvers that characterize the Hebrew Bible. This is great. The underlying biblical conception of people's character is that they're unpredictable, constantly emerging from and slipping back into ambiguity. Thus, biblical narrative style is marked by the art of reticence. So, biblical characters are rarely, almost never, described with very much detail. There's just a small handful of characters whose appearance is ever described. You are, seriously, on the count of two hands, moments where you're given the inner thoughts of a character for why they're doing something. And so, the art of reticence, biblical narrative uses characters as a vehicle, primarily through showing what they do and what they say, rather than telling you about them or telling you why they do what they do. So, showing rather than telling is the shorthand for that. In other words, biblical characters are incredibly mysterious. (laughs) That's why he says the underlying biblical conception of people's character is that they're unpredictable. And you're like, what? Wait, no, that that wasn't the plan. Like, he wasn't supposed to do that. And then you're just left with this gap in this strange detail. You're never given Abraham's inner psychology of why he did what he did. You are shown his choice. And then, as a narrative technique, it's a way of you're showing a choice of a character, but the reader has to work for an interpretation. And this is typical all the way through. Genesis 22, God tests Abraham, take your son, your only son, and offer, give him as an offering. And the reader, you're scandalized. You're like, why is God doing this? And what's going on inside Abraham's mind? And you're never once you're never given told. psychology. But the richness of the story is precisely in the lack of detail because it makes the reader ponder and fill in the details yourself until you are given more information. The lack of detail is intentional and strategic. And it's frustrating for modern readers. We mistake it as just, oh, this is a primitive, poorly told story. Look, all the characters are simple, black and white. They're not. And that's just totally missing biblical narrative style. So that's what Alter's saying. We have to adjust our habits from constantly being given the inner dialogue of characters and learn how the biblical narratives force you to work. They're engaging you in a wrestling match. <laughs> By this, Just think through all these stories of the Bible and all of a sudden you'll start asking, oh, why did he do that? You know, why did God accept Abel's offering, but not Cain? And oh, was Cain jealous? The story actually never says that. The story just says he got bummed. So almost every biblical story is capable ultimately of about three or four different interpretations (laughs) in a way at a first pass because you realize, oh, I'm not being given information, half the information I wish I had to make sense of the story. And you think it's an error in the narrative, but in fact, it's 
the intentional text. The looks are only described when for functionally because they'll play a role in the story. Occasionally, the narrator will just straight up tell you, yeah, this guy's bad, but it's very rare. For the most part, biblical narrators refrain from sermonizing or moralizing characters. What they do is just set their choices in front of you, and then you have to be the one to evaluate. So one Jewish scholar, her name's Adele Berlin, she has a really great way of, of talking about this. When the biblical authors do directly describe characters, it's very rare, and it's always very strategic. And she compares it to impressionist painting. So again, it's similar to René Magritte about his contrast with realism and saying it's always representation. So he's a part of the surrealist movement. The impressionist movement was explicitly trying to draw attention to the fact that we can never describe things as they are. And so this was a movement that didn't try to achieve detail, but they did try to achieve the same effect that an image would have on you through minimal detail, through tiny strokes, this, or pointillism was the same, through tiny, just thousands of tiny dots, so that when you get up close to the painting, there's it's like hardly anything here. But then you back up, and it's the impression actually creates more. So, for example, by just telling you Esau is hairy, yeah. so what else is hit? Animals are hairy, <laughs> you know? And he, we're told he's an outdoorsman. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on in the story to behave like an animal. <laughs> Accumulating wives, uh, he sees women and marries them on the, on the spot <laughs> in narrative time. You know, <laughs> The whole thing is that he's hasty and he's hungry. Give me this food. And, yeah. uh, you know. So he's actually, his hairiness creates an animal, primitive man-like impression about him. Mm. But it's just a tie. It's just two words yeah. in Hebrew. <laughs> right. right. Small um, brush stroke. And all of a sudden, his whole persona has this aura of mm. animal likeness about him. Mm. So Berlin's point here, well, actually here is a great quote. She says, in Impressionist art, the suggestion of a thing may be more convincing than a detailed portrayal. This is due to the tendency of our brains to project meaning onto images in order to complete our expectations. We see what we expect to see, and the surrounding information guides <laughs> our perception. This is why we fill in a partially drawn figure to conform to our expectations. And in some cases, too much detail might destroy the image. So the trick from the artist's point of view is how much detail to include and how much to omit. And she applies this to reading biblical narrative. This is a good corrective for those who wish biblical stories provided more concrete details, but this is precisely its narrative technique. The gaps left in biblical narratives are intentional so that with a few deft strokes, the biblical author engages the imagination of the reader to construct a picture that's more real than if he had filled in David or Abraham or Joseph's portrait with more detail. Minimal representation can give maximal illusion. It's brilliant. But I think it's the same challenge we come across. Just think of any biblical story that's ever confused you. And I guarantee it's from some lack of detail that would unlock the whole thing for you. Why did Moses strike the rock instead yeah. of speak to it? And right. why does he get disqualified from yeah. the problem for that? You know, we're just given the barest minimum, but also that bare minimum forces the reader to create a fuller story at the same time in your imagination as you read. And that, it seems like that's exactly the aim of this economic storytelling style. And then that forces you to think, well, how do I learn how to evaluate characters? Is mostly just through their choices, what they do, or through their speech. So this is where the minimalism of biblical narrative comes in. Instead of editorializing 
biblical narrators will just think of half the scandalous things that biblical characters do. (laughs) Really screwed up people. (laughs) And then the question is, so is God endorsing this? So you have to back up and you have to say, just because a character does something in a story doesn't mean it's being endorsed. endorsed. And just look at how the narrative shows you the consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, Parents who show favoritism. (laughs) Yeah. Multiple stories about this. Always bad. And so you walk away going, was that good or bad? The whole Solomon story. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? All the way through. And so it makes these stories so frustrating to read. Well, you can experience it differently. You could experience a frustration. Just tell me the point. Am I supposed to be like this guy or am I supposed to not be like this guy? And biblical narrators just refuse to give us things on a silver platter. It's like they force you to work for it. Because they could have. I mean, there was nothing keeping them from telling you. They're totally capable of saying, and he was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah. He was bad. So don't be, and you go, And okay. they've done that a time or two. Yeah, and they do it sometimes. But, but for the most rare. part, they don't. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because they want you to wrestle with it. The downside is you come up with a bad interpretation. Mm-hmm. You're filling in the gaps, yeah. and you create a picture that they weren't intending. Mm-hmm. So if that's the risk, mm-hmm. what's the upside, <laughs> right? That... Makes that risk worthwhile. Yeah. I've been saving this quote for last. So this is the single most important work on biblical narrative by a Jewish scholar, Meyer Sternberg, called The Poetics of Biblical Narrative. It's a long quote. So he says, once you realize that the Bible's anti-didactic style, didactic meaning moral education. In other words, that even though it tells you all these stories of people making good decisions or horrible decisions, it never explicitly says, be like this person, don't which, be like that Which person. is so funny because we, that's what we turn it's it into. precisely what the modern Western Christian tradition has done with biblical narrative. And he would argue we've ruined it because it, may, it forces you to fill in gaps and make interpretive decisions on behalf of the story, whereas the point of the story is to make every reader do the work themselves. Okay, so he says, once you realize the Bible's anti-didactic style is its narrative policy, you gain insight into the role of the aesthetic subtlety of these stories. They almost always shun extended commentary or explanation, let alone homiletics, Uh that is, sermonizing. These authors intentionally leave gaps for the readers to puzzle over discontinuities, indeterminacies, non sequiturs, unexplained motives. And they're fully aware of the disorienting (laughs) effect this has on readers as they try to draw lessons from the past. Biblical narrators conceal the meaning of their stories to an extent seldom equaled by any other literature in history. Interesting. He's a comparative literature like this guy knows. Professor. Yes. He reads a lot of different ancient literature. Look at what he says. This style was not inherited by Israel's neighboring cultures. It was invented and elaborated in the Israelite tradition of narrative. And it's nothing less than deliberate. So in the ancient world, there's no parallel for this style. Okay, so here's his take on the effect that this is designed to have. He says, in day-to-day life, our day-to-day life, knowledge and information, the ability to understand the meaning of events is power. But in reading the Bible, we're constantly puzzling over the gaps in the story. Why did Moses do that? Why did God do that? And this is strategic. Our puzzlement is an imitation of our real position in life. It exposes our ignorance about the meaning of history 
and our lives. <laughs> Biblical stories imitate our real-life conditions of inference as we too are daily surrounded by ambiguities, we're baffled, we're misled by appearances, we're reduced to piecing fragments together by trial and error of interpretation, and we're often left in the dark about the meaning of our lives until the very end. The to the very end. To the very end, he goes on. The scarcity of commentary by the biblical narrators forces us to constantly evaluate characters' motives and the meaning of the plot as we look for clues. It is only by sustained effort that the reader of biblical narratives can attain to the point of view that you come to realize making sense of biblical stories is to gain a sense of being human. So his first point is that this minimalist style is trying to recreate in the narrative your experience of your own life. Like the same difficulties that I yeah. have interpreting why I had that conversation yesterday and why I got that email and why that fender bender happened. You know? His point is they... They don't want you to be certain. They conceal as Because much as in life, reveal. we That's can't right. be certain about things. That's right. We crave certainty and mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. don't have it, so we pretend we have it. Yes. And so we tell ourselves stories mm. and we allow ourselves to believe things we often deceive ourselves. Sure. Yes. Yeah. But in order to have some sort of stability. Mm -hmm. That's what all these scholars are saying, is that the large biblical narrative is constructing a very meaningful story yeah. of our world. There is meaning and coherence. But when it comes to the individual human characters in these stories... It's very minimalist, and their motives and the uh, the moral evaluation of many of their decisions is really opaque. It's uh, it's not transparent. And what he's saying is because the story is trying to place us in precisely the same experience we have with our lives. And that's why Robert Alter, at the beginning of that quote, he says, the underlying biblical conception of people's character is that they're unpredictable. Abraham, why did you give Sarah away the second time? And then, right? And then you start to feel morally superior because you're like, oh, I would never do the same mistake a second time. And then you pause and then you're like, dang it. No, I did that thing for the fourth time yesterday. And it's both frustrating, but brilliant. Many times the biblical characters can seem like bumbling idiots and you're wondering why they're doing what they're doing until you realize this is actually a fairly accurate description of my moral progress and regress, you know, yeah. on a month by month level. And, oh yeah, why did I yell at that person yesterday? Hmm. Was that really just righteous indignation? <laughs> or maybe I was just being selfish. Hmm. Or I don't even understand my own motives hmm. half the time. How could I possibly hope to understand Moses's or David's? Biblical literature has this unique style of intentionally withholding a clear interpretation of you know, characters. And you go back and reread those narratives and almost always multiple interpretations you can make about why they made the decisions in the first place. And as a style, it's very engaging. It's realistic. It's moral realism for the human of the human condition that like most people aren't only good and only bad. Mm. We're all a mixed bag of different amounts, you know. The point is it's intentional. It's not primitive. It's it's not just ancient. It's hmm. very sophisticated and realistic. The way characters work in narratives is by identification. You paint characters that the viewer or reader identifies with. You want your audience to connect with the characters mm -hmm. and so that their experience can map onto your own life experience. And so we're now we're talking about a technique where you constantly are wondering who you're supposed to identify with. Yeah. 
do I identify with Moses? Right. Well, sure, I've had moments of anger and injustice. You know? Yeah. And then you go, oh, but maybe he just has a hot temper and it got him into trouble. And then do I have that? Probably do I not. And so it, it forces self-evaluation, but through a really different way yeah. than just being like, this person was good. Be like them. This yeah. person was bad. Don't be like them. It's interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And this is why, even though you think you know the story, because you read the children's book of Noah or whatever, you can never replace sitting down and reading it slowly from beginning to end. There's just something about that experience of biblical narrative. You can't replace it with teaching it. Hmm. You'll always have to clarify and... Yeah and make it simpler than it actually is. And so the literature itself forces you to do the only thing with it it's meant for, which is to sit down and read it from beginning to end. <laughs> and you cannot replace that experience because mm. that itself is a drama. Mm. And that's how, the, that's how biblical literature is designed. Wow. It's brilliant. <laughs> Did you get all that? You still with me? There's so much in there that's applicable to the approach taken by these films. And you can hear echoes of it in Snyder's introduction to the Man of Steel art book. The emphasis on unanswerable questions, self-reflection, lack of omniscience, disorientation, and the journey of self-discovery. In sum, the point is to provide as imperfect a picture of the story with incomplete information so that we are forced to wrestle, contemplate, and conclude on our own with our own willful attempts at empathy and understanding in a manner more applicable to the real world with its incomplete information, narratives, prejudices, inconsistencies, complexity and so on. Life doesn't come as a convenient pre-packaged story where the plot lines are clear, just, fair, and consistent. The villains and heroes obvious and the act structure expected and familiar. The Bible's approach acts as a simulator for us to seek understanding and empathy of one another in all that chaos. And that approach took a tiny tribal cult and turned it into spiritual sustenance for half the world, following the Abrahamic religions and most of the rest of the world affected by it. Man of Steel and BVS are filled with intentionally incomplete details that we're left to wrestle with. Why did Jor-El place the Codex in Kal-El if he didn't intend for him to use it? What precisely was the mechanism and meaning of Bruce's visions of the future and of the Flash? What does Lex mean half the time he says anything? <laughs> These kind of things appear to be unforced errors in conventional storytelling with spoon-fed structure and empathy. But that maddening lack of information is intended to drive us to greater heights of empathy and understanding if we choose to engage the material and the mystery. If you refuse to do that much, then of course you will condemn or reject the thing simply at or on face value. The abstract piece of art is hardly worth analysis and disregarded merely as a geometric mess. The piece of poetry seen as impenetrable pretension instead of innermost expression. And, more salient to us as everyday people, the stranger just going about their lives without context, narrative, or easily empathetic hook remains to us just an obstacle stranger and inhuman because circumstances, situation, or story did nothing to make us feel for them or understand them. We are invited to exercise the active and willful extension of our empathy to encompass even the incomplete, messy, and non-narrative. Most times, we just select the easiest narrative that allows us to simply go on with the rest of our day. We write people off as bad, deserving of ill will and bad fortune, or irrelevant to us. We never extend empathy or understanding unless it's pitched to us in 
prepackaged narratives which we've come to expect. Our entitled checklists let us judge the world and others quickly, efficiently, and without reflection. We've come to expect these routine narratives spoon-fed to us, where we get upset and petulant at anything that defies them or fails to conform to our expectations or checklists. And we treat our expectations and checklists as true unto themselves. And that callous approach we take with each other and our lives is reflected in the broad conception of Superman. We've taken him for granted for so long, he's very much considered a caricature or committee checklist of qualities by much of the public, yet with plenty of available depth and humanity to be explored if we endeavored to do so. And that was the intention of the filmmakers, to return an essential empathy to our interaction with the character. Not through easy, reflexive, heartstring pulls, plays at nostalgia, put-on jokes, and perfection of the pre-programmed checklist, but instead making him as much a mystery as most of mankind we may ever meet. We don't get everyone's life story. We don't get the exposition of their inner thoughts, motives, dreams, and fears. In reality, most people are a cipher to us, which we quote-unquote solve by slotting them into stereotypes instead of taking the effort to think through their perspectives and empathize. If you you engage in that effort and come away with that habit through these films, it's much more rewarding. Your appreciation of Superman grows, you gain a better understanding of the filmmakers, and you can better relate to your world and others. And that seems like a worthy and ambitious goal beyond simply seeking to divert your attention for two hours. That seems like the goal of someone taking the mythology seriously and wanting to impart lasting value to it. Consider briefly the alternative. In 80 years, we've seen countless variations and iterations of Superman. If all the filmmakers did was add another series of fact-specific continuity to the pile, that Superman would just be another embodiment to be lost and forgotten to the sands of time. Every iteration may make distinct whether Jor-El wore green, black, red, or white, whether the Kents are old or young, whether they're named Mary, Martha, John, or Jonathan, whether the infant immigrant has all his powers or none, whether he grows up a football star or an outsider, whether there was a Superboy or the adventure adventures of the Legion, the origin of the suit, and when Clark learns his Kryptonian origins. Every version varies in milestones, memories, costumes, characters, and content. And with every one of those decisions comes division. People for and against, people passionate and indifferent, spit curls, red briefs, or a symbol on the cape, there are dozens of variables to debate and decide. There have been over a dozen different live-action Superman costumes. And... I say this sincerely, on all of these issues, reasonable minds may differ with detailed justifications or just mere preference. So outside of an appeal to nostalgia for a prior specific iteration, the chances of any new iteration having the combination of all the fact-specific continuity that you most desire or agree with is quite low. And for this reason, any new iteration shouldn't try to be guided by a cynical committee checklist, but their own vision. And that said, any new vision is going to be lost in the shuffle. In 1988, CBS aired seven hours of a Superman animated series by Marv Wolfman and Gil Kane. This coincided with the 50th anniversary of Superman, as well as the release of the live-action Superboy television series, which ran for a hundred episodes. These basically wrapped up the Bronze Age of Superman comics, which spanned a decade and a half before John Byrne's Man of Steel modern reboot. A seven-hour cartoon, 37 hours of TV, and 14 years of continuity. But if I run the average person through a quiz of minute continuity-based distinctions, differences, 
and details, who would know them all or care besides the most ardent of fans? It isn't a specific combination of facts or continuity tidbits that make Superman significant, it's how that interacts with you. The parts of Superman which last and percolate into the mainstream do not seem to be continuity specific, but instead milestones in empathy. For most of Superman's early life, it was an escapist power fantasy. For the modern take, it was the introduction of believable psychology driving questions of identity, and with that came questions of mortality and marriage. And today, our contemporary questions seem to be about deity, piety, and legacy. What does Superman mean to comics as a whole and to older fans of the genre? What does it mean to be a Boy Scout after so much cynicism? And what does it mean to have so much power? Those broad and sweeping applications transcend any fact-specific Superman. So instead of just adding another set of continuity-specific stories to the pile, the filmmakers intended to impart a transcendent understanding of Superman and his empathy so that you can better understand the other. But don't take my word for it. Here are some clips by the filmmakers to that effect. And this was a different thing, you know, we really had to take this mythological character and sort of create him again, make him live again. And I think the thing was, you know, we really just said, okay, let's pretend like those movies, no movies have been made and we're just making one for the first time. And I think that that was really the key because I think that it was this fractured mythology that existed in the sort of movie world. You know, you had whether it be Smallville or all the different crazy movies and the animated series and just everything. It's like, you can imagine there's like a million different versions of Superman in media. And we just said like, no, let's just pretend it's all nothing. And we found these comic books on the ground and we're going to make them into a movie. Yeah. Really wanted the movie to be, well, look, you know, I made it for myself, you know, and I'm a fan. So like everything was, I really wanted it to be just full of emotion, you know, because I feel that way about it, you know. So I just, I want... I have such sort of respect for that mythology, the Superman mythology, that I just think that if any superhero movie can have some gravitas, I think it's a Superman movie, right? That's like what yeah. it's about. So that's, yeah. that was kind of the why of it. Well, first of all, he's the first superhero that's entered pop culture. And, you know, it's totally American mythology on like an epic scale. He's an immigrant and he's an orphan and he's trying to find his way in the world and what is his purpose. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I always think that like, because Superman being from Krypton, it's easy for him to remind us what it is to be human because he's looking at us from the outside. He comes here and he can show us ourselves maybe clearer than we can. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but it does feel like that's possible. Really the point is, is we want to be able to look through Superman's eyes at the world. I think that that is the way that you understand the decisions he makes as a man, you know? Like he's not a god that you're just looking up to. He's actually a person with like frailties and and dreams and wanting to fit in just like all of us, so yeah. This is the right order, by the way. It's the correct order because making Watchmen, you really deconstruct this mythology and these icons so intensely that then to later try and create one, you have a skill set, I think, that comes in super handy in the understanding of the why of them, you know? The why of it is half of the battle. It's like if I was making a novel into a movie, I would like really want to focus in on the particulars of that story, but because this is a character, torn 75 years of stories have gone on with Superman, you're literally talking about a guy who has been through every single thing you can imagine, and every incarnation you can imagine, horses, monkeys, (laughs) Dogs, you know, they've thrown the kitchen sink at this guy. That it's fun to be able to distill him down to that, what I would consider is just the best bits of him. Why doesn't he kill? Why does he love humanity so much? Where does he come from? All those things that I think are innately 
he loves Lois. Why? There was a question mark in a way on all those things. And I think the movie really goes to its job is to answer the questions of the man and the myth of Superman. Well, I think that his essence has not changed since 1938 when he first, you know, came onto the scene and, and was the first superhero of all time. And every superhero since him has been, you know, derivative of him and sort of stolen a little piece of him. I really think what we've tried to do with him is put him back make that obvious that he has value in in being the first and most powerful and that there's a purity to his mythology that is that is pretty awesome you know we didn't we didn't try and mess with that when we made the movie try to get at the sort of the most basic building blocks that are superman and really just kind of put him on steroids a little bit and bring him back out i guess superman uh to me superman like really was represented in this sort of really complex mythology that I feel like is amazingly uh, important even now, you know. People think, oh, he's out of date. You know, Superman's out of date because he just wants to help everyone. And, I, and I'm always like, wait a minute. So wait, helping people is not cool now? Like, right. Like, that's not, you know. And so that, that was really important for me to get that message of sacrifice and this message of volunteer work, you know, really is what he's all about. Like, completely anonymous, right? Like, he's just like, look, no one needs to know who I am, but I have to help, you know. And right. I think that's, that's cool for us, you know, in this modern world where everyone's so snarky and wanting to just like say you know that maybe helping people isn't cool i don't get that that's who superman is to me look i wanted the audience to be able to go like if i was superman that's what i would do you know what i mean and so the only way that you're gonna get there is by showing him that yeah maybe he's a little bit of a misfit when he was younger maybe he had some trouble you know relating to his peers and all those things that we all go through so that by the time he grows up and he's the man you go like, wow, like I, I've been with him. I've journeyed with him. Now I'm ready to, to you know, fly alongside him. Right. Superman is all of us, you know, in a way. And I think that that's what we really try to do. We try to get at the us in Superman. And I think that to, to say that he's moody or brooding, I think it, as much as any of us are, you know, as much as... Uh, he's more realistic, I think. He faces yeah. more realistic problems and he struggles to... He still does good, but he struggles to do good. He just wants to find his place in the world, as you know. hundred percent, and that, that's exactly what it was. And it was for me like a whole, all about like flipping the iconology so that you start off with a cliche and then you realize sort of the, the why of it. For me, those two elements were super important. The element of him being an alien, and then the element of him being a man. And those sound like a contradiction. But I feel like the fun of the movie is that he's more human than human because the fact that he's an alien. He comes to Earth, and because he's an alien, he wants desperately all the things that we have naturally, right? Even though he's got these powers, he still, in his heart, wants just to be loved by his parents. You know, just the thing I think we all feel. And I think that that, as an opening, as a, as a beginning, a allows you into inside of Superman, maybe for the first time. You're looking at the world through his eyes rather than just looking at him up on screen. So those were the goals, but the approach to empathy was biblical instead of manipulative. Instead of taking the easy road to make you feel something explicitly clear or intrinsically sympathetic, these films have been challenging, forcing the audience to do the work for empathy. And that work is valuable because you not only come away with empathy, but the procedure, practice, habit, and experience of empathy applicable to the real world with all its ambiguities, inconsistencies, and complexity. Not only do you understand Superman better, you can understand the other better. You can navigate the world of incomplete information rather than demand it's spoon-fed to you. And that's an ambitious approach built to last. 
It's an approach that enables you to accept new information and to change. Consider this historical parable taken from excerpts from the Wikipedia entry on New American Wave Film. By way of context, the films of the 50s and early 60s were squarely in the studio system, which was declining in the face of television. New Hollywood, or the New American Wave, was a counter-movement that lasted until the rise of the mainstream 80s blockbuster, Star Wars, Superman, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Back to the Future, and so on. Those films looked fondly back on studio system-era films and remixed them with New Hollywood techniques. So, reading from the entry, in New Hollywood films, the film director, rather than the studio, took on a key authorial role. The films made in this movement are characterized by their narratives strongly deviating from classical norms. After the demise of the studio system and the rise of television, the commercial success of films was diminished. The New Hollywood period was a period of revival. Life magazine called the 1950s, quote, the horrible decade for Hollywood, end quote. The 1950s and the early 60s saw a Hollywood dominated by musicals and historical epics. Desperation felt by the studios during this period of economic downturn led to innovation and risk-taking, allowing greater control by younger directors, briefly changing the business from the producer-driven Hollywood system of the past. A defining film of the new Hollywood generation was Bonnie and Clyde, 1967, when Jack L. Warner, then CEO of Warner Brothers, first saw a rough cut of Bonnie and Clyde in the summer of 67, he hated it. Distribution executives at Warner Brothers agreed, giving the film a low-key premiere and limited release. Their strategy appeared to be justified when a critic at the New York Times gave the movie a scathing review. Reviews from Time and Newsweek magazines were equally dismissive. Its portrayal of violence and ambiguity in regard to moral values and its startling ending divided critics. Following one of the negative reviews, Time Magazine received letters from fans of the movie, and critic Pauline Kael, in her positive review of the film in The New Yorker, led other reviewers to follow her lead and re-evaluate the film, notably Newsweek and Time. The cover story in Time Magazine in December 67 celebrated the movie and innovation in American New Wave cinema. This review and turnaround by some critics allowed the film to be re-released, thus proving its commercial success and reflecting the move to New Hollywood. These initial successes paved the way for the studio to relinquish almost complete control to these innovative young filmmakers. So that's the story. In our exploration of empathy, one of the critical aspects of that is being open to alternative opinions and open to something other than your knee-jerk response. In a clickbait culture, there's intense pressure to publish fast, publish first, to immediately decide how and what you feel, to affix that to a tweet, post, article, or review for all time and for all to see ASAP. It's already well-studied and replicated that this kind of mindset and behavior is us at our worst. You will not employ your tools to understand the difficult, challenging, different, or ambiguous. Instead, you will immediately compare, contrast, and criticize against your pre-existing models and pigeonholes. You will not wait, meditate, search, seek, or listen. You will print your position and be anchored to it, refusing to listen or change out of self-consistency bias. It's been stated explicitly by BVS co-producer Kurt Kanemoto, the big theme of the movie is, at the 
end of the day, are we too quick to judge sometimes? Do we act on impulse? Do we act on disinformation? Do we have all the facts before we do something? That's the takeaway of the film. So isn't it amazing in the story of Bonnie and Clyde that a reviewer took time to listen and consider to forward a different position and that other critics actually took that position as well considered and remarkably changed their minds about a film that they had previously panned. That isn't a first impression or an easy formula. That's real empathy and real hope. Understanding that none of us understand it all and being open to thoughts, attitudes, cultures, and beliefs challenging to our own. Not necessarily to accept or to adhere to it all, but to have that transcendent empathy that lets us change the world. That's the kind of empathy and world these films challenge us to make. To create a world that would invite Superman with open arms, hearts, and minds through a hard look at ourselves as we are now and actively taking up the responsibility to change. That's a last mission. You have this absolutely meta story, you know, Superman is a primal character. It was designed as a way of dealing with contemporary angst. It was two kids in New York threatened with the end of the world and World War II. So it's absolutely appropriate to make it become a mirror for the contemporary condition. So what lasts? Wrap it all up, let me just hit six quick characteristics of illuminated manuscripts which endure and can apply to these films. This is a non-exhaustive list. Surely some works last without these qualities or with other ones, but nonetheless, the consideration of these factors may be illuminating, pun intended. So we regard illuminated manuscripts created hundreds of years ago because they are one, extravagant, two, historical, three, definitive, four, challenging, five, specific, and six, transcendent. Extravagance refers to the expense and labor put in. Illuminated manuscripts were adorned with precious metals and each was handcrafted. Many took lifetimes to construct and to complete. Compared to a 10-cent comic churned out on disposable newsprint, illuminations were costly and valued from the very start. These blockbusters are the Hollywood equivalent, with the largest budgets and the biggest crews and engaging the pinnacle of visual effects with big-name actors and filmmakers. Historical means that the illuminated manuscripts give us a window into medieval times, a picture of their contemporary views, technology, culture, art, and more. Similarly, grounding these films so closely to our contemporary condition, they are a snapshot of our times. It's regrettable, but because hindsight is 2020, I doubt BVS will ever receive credit for how predictive, practically prophetic, it was of the next few years to come. Definitive refers to how these works are exemplars of their larger idea. You can appreciate the Bible reading plain modern text, but the illumination is a model Bible of a different sort. Similarly, there are thousands of Superman issues, hundreds of Superman adaptations in mixed media, but the live-action feature film holds a special place among them all. They are also definitive in that they represent extremes and boundaries on a thing. Batman, for example, lives comfortably between the boundaries of Batman 66 and The Dark Knight Returns most times, and those works last as definitive boundary lines. Illuminations place an upper boundary on how much honor should be placed in a physical manifestation of the word. Similarly, these films place a bound on how real, complex, and ambiguous a Superman story can go. As Batman 66 serves to define Batman the Light Knight, these films serve to define Superman the Strange Visitor. 
challenging works provide fodder for existential questions. They foster debate and discussion. They force us to turn ideas over in our minds, meditate on them, and grapple with subjectivity, philosophy, and self. Certainly, the underlying ideas behind scripture and the Superman mythos support these kinds of explorations, but illuminations specifically show how an illuminator wrestled with those matters and these films intentionally invoke them. Specific, as we've said, no two illuminated manuscripts are identical. Each represents the vision of its illuminators. These films embody a specific vision which harnesses the power of cult sensibility and are adored by a specific audience. Broader conceptions may have more mass appeal, but sometimes at the expense of passion or intensity, as Thompson and Gladwell comment. While the unconventional is not always universally accepted, the subsequent impact of inventive works stands the test of time and serves as the standard or boundary for the future. Finally, transcendent means the ability to take away an impact beyond the literal four corners of the text. For both the illuminations and these films, that may refer to the religious and mythological themes engaged. Or, as we've discussed in this episode, works which promote active empathy, where you take on the responsibility to willfully exercise the habit instead of sitting passively waiting for your entertainment to manipulate your increasingly desensitized inklings, that kind of impact on the audience, and subsequently the world, is transcendent and lasts. To actively engage, to attempt understanding, to challenge, these are tools we need today. Just passive consumption doesn't cut it. Truth justice, and the American way are not things to be taken for granted or passively accepted. We have to take responsibility for what we receive as truth, actively pursue justice, and challenge the way that we are going. That is what lasts. And isn't that our aim? As Chuck Palahniuk writes, we all die. The goal isn't to live forever. The goal is to create something that will. (laughs) Okay. I've rambled on long enough. So thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. My mama, my mosaic. My mama, my mosaic. My mama, my mosaic. My mama, my mosaic. M is for mutual respect. Don't put me down and don't hurt me. O is for open-mindedness See me for who I am and don't judge me S is for self-respect and A is for attitude You've got to love yourself and stay positive I is for individuality and C is for community When we come together in the places we live Come on, kids! My mama, my mosaic My mama, my mosaic My mama, my mosaic my mama, my mosaic And if we live by these lessons And spread them across land and sea We can create a better future And live together in peace My mama, my mosaic 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 My mama, my mosaic
You're the answer, son. All right, so some editing endnotes. This isn't a Justice League episode, nor is it intended as one, but I'll share some thoughts about it at the end. Even these endnotes are intended towards the theme of the episode, which I admit is a little fuzzy. I couldn't decide between religion, empathy, or endurance. So like my other survey episodes, which are usually three 30-minute segments loosely tied together, I just talk about all three. (laughs) I recognize that these episodes are growing increasingly inaccessible and challenging. (laughs) But in the future, I plan to uh, pair that back. So as a meta dilemma, my endnotes will also be tripartite, the first section about the elements edited out, the second section on production updates, and finally, a few thoughts about Justice League. And I guess I'll try to find a song or something to play you out. So for the religious segment, I cut out a lot of little things, which I think I could repurpose for a future episode. On hope, I made a footnote about non-Western illuminated texts, such as with the Quran or sutras. And I stuck with Western texts because I found more materials pertaining to the Bible and my own familiarity. And while I said that it was inspired by Zach's quotes, what triggered my memory of them was a friend who recently acquired a book of hours, which was surprisingly affordable considering that it's an artifact over 600 years old. There was a version of this episode about artifacts and Indiana Jones. <laughs> So I made this disclaimer earlier, but it bears repeating because I'm sure some will claim that this episode is a declaration that these films are on par with Holy Scripture to be treated as such and that everything else is dross. No, (laughs) that's not what I'm saying. All I'm doing is showing the value in an unconventional approach that might be missed if judged by conventional means. Of course, people love films that follow conventions. The rise of the four-quadrant film created a checklist of expectations that all those kinds of films conform to. And those films are adored and able to endure based on that adoration as well. For example, after the confrontational New American Wave, and after society had entered the cynical 80s, film became escapist entertainment meant to hearken back to an earlier era. Superman 78, for example, extolled the virtues of being raised on a farm in the 50s. Raiders of the Lost Ark and Back to the Future took us back in time. And Star Wars was set a long time ago and made up of a remix of bygone sci-fi serials. Period pieces and looking backwards is a timeless approach, but Superman's moniker isn't the man of yesteryear. Arguably, he isn't supposed to be a little old-fashioned or a man out of time, but a contemporary, cutting-edge, space-age science fiction hero from the stars, a man of tomorrow. Some have confused his endurance with nostalgic conservation and forgotten how challenging he was, how confrontational, how radical, and how dangerous. The culture forgot how he was an alien and strange visitor, and it was completely valid to try to recapture that and remind us. Okay. Another religious theme I cut out was about minority positions in Reformation, basically how Judaism started out as a religion of exiles, slaves, and commoners, compared to movements started by aristocracy, powerful, privileged, and elites. However, as power builds, orthodoxy sets in and gets challenged or refreshed by Reformation. A constant push and pull between these two forces and tensions keeps the ideas alive, and it's what separates a living, breathing religion culture, language, or mythos from a dead one. Even if you fall on the side of orthodoxy for Superman, the reformers and their alleged heresies are what challenge, strengthen, and make alive and relevant 
the orthodox. To be unchallenged is to be ignored and irrelevant and to fade into becoming a forgotten fable or mere mascot. Anyways, I had a bunch of examples of the cycle of minority to mainstream, but I cut that entire segment in favor of Thompson's dialogue on the misconceptions about popularity as broad consensus. In the biblical literary analysis segment, I cut two additional literary devices from Robert Alter's books and lectures. The first is the strategic use of names in the Bible, and the second is the use of parallels and repetition. They were both amazingly insightful, but required just too much Bible-specific knowledge to be appreciated and took too long to develop the case for me to justify including in this already jam-packed episode. With regards to names, they build the case of how important names and naming is, and you may pick up some of that from pop culture, like that scene from The Last Crusade, and I told you there was an indie-themed version of this episode. (laughs) And, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain, golems, and so on. And it just shows how it's used as a literary device. And suffice to say, it was building a case for the Martha moment as something very much in line with biblical works which turn on a name. And of course, we apply some of that to the Superman mythos generally with, of course, the House of El and translating Kal-El into the voice or vessel of God and looking at the intentions of initially naming Clark's parents Mary and allegedly Joseph. Incidentally, if anyone can provide me an original source for that last claim, I'd appreciate it. I know for certain that Martha Kent started off as Mary. It's as clear as day in Superman issue number one, but I've seen many circular citations to Jonathan once being named Joseph, and I can't find an original source for that. Regardless, Clark eventually adopts that as a middle name, so the meaning can still be applied. The intentions of Siegel and Schuster was another historical context cut from the episode, and I'll probably save this for that Hope episode, but basically it has to do with the ubiquity, prevalence, and influence of religion historically compared to today. In a Gallup poll, Spanning from 1948 to 2017, tracking religious identification, only 2% of Americans did not identify with religion compared to 20% today. When Superman was published in 1938 and for most of his lifespan, it's arguable that Americans had or adhered to personal religious identities which did not seek solace in a corporate comic book character. But the point was, from a historical context, even non-adherents would be versed in the Bible just as literature in the early 20th century. Even if you were an atheist like C.S. Lewis started, or Jewish like Siegel and Schuster, it saturated the culture and was a pervasive influence on works. It acted as common collective mythology for the culture at the time, which is, in some degree, addressed by superheroes today. And that's also a suggestion that naming Clark's mother Mary wasn't just happenstance, but a Martha moment of a different sort for Siegel and Schuster. Uh, The segment on religious parallels is even more arcane, but it shows how they're used both on a micro and macro level, in poetic refrain, in repeated plot points, in parables and proverbs, and finally, in the whole proto-evangelion as prophetically pointing to Jesus Christ as Messiah. Parallels within and parallels without, we use that device to look at its usage within these films, between these films, and to the larger mythos. There are countless examples in these films of such parallels and repetition, but Robert Alter's lectures give rather profound explanations for why, for example, it's worth revisiting Krypton as explained by Jor-El, even though we had already seen it with our own eyes at the beginning of the film. It seems inefficient, but it's actually a sophisticated means of conveying so much more. I'm not doing it justice, but it comes down to appreciating the difference between the two tellings as illustrative of character, motivation, theme,
themes and thoughts, but the full lecture is much more nuanced and better argued and just too dense to compress here. So that's a topic to revisit at another time. Anyways, once you begin to realize and appreciate parallels in works, that becomes a skill that allows you to see the parallels in your life for insight and application. Again, expecting the audience to extract that meaning and value is a risky approach for a work to take, but it isn't wrong. We didn't get into it in the episode and we won't hear, but consider what people are asking for when they rely on consensus, the majority, conformity, and checklists. They're asking for something created by committee that's safe, bland, and cynically calculated to appeal. And if we're going to make religious comparisons, this is a little like forgetting the dangerous implications of a messiah to society, or that Superman is an alien and the strange visitor. Look, there's many reasons to put an emphasis on the compassion, forgiveness, and loving nature of Christ. And yet, when C.S. Lewis wrote his fantasy series Narnia, he embodied their messiah as a great lion instead. Is he a man? Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. Is it safe? I feel scared about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Why? Perhaps it's because there's something to remembering that a Christ figure is less Ned Flanders and more dangerous but good. Similar to how these films present the edgier aspects of Superman. And yet, so often, critics question why they're being shown the strange visitor instead of the Boy Scout or the Paragon. Which is a little like asking why Aslan isn't a lamb instead of a lion. And then going on and on about how the lion fails to conform to the image and idea of a lamb. <laughs> That completely misses the goals of the emphasis. Projecting perfection upon Superman, expecting him to be endlessly optimistic, a perfect paragon, flawless and faultless, the idealized ideal, a fount of hope and inspiration, is ironically degrading objectification, turning him purely into a thing that serves some function rather than a person. Such perspectives rob Superman of his humanity, his heart, his trials and errors, his insecurities and terrors, his growth, his mind, his will and emotions. A person is allowed these things. A paragon exists only on paper. And the emphasis on the alien nature is to encourage empathy over adoration or exultation. At that point, the lowest form of criticism is to repeat by rote how an intentional emphasis fails to conform to another model with an entirely different purpose. It becomes absurd to critique the lion for its lack of meekness. And yet this is what so much of modern criticism has been reduced to, locked into a specific vision of what a film, character, or story should be, and immediately listing off all its failures to conform instead of thinking critically about its intentions, understanding the work or its authors. Such critics immediately leap to the assumption of error or misunderstanding on the part of the filmmakers. And that reminds me of a math problem that recently went viral. There are 125 sheep and five dogs in a flock. How old is the shepherd? The problem was originally asked by French researchers what was the point of this exercise? The researchers had expected that most students would think the question is absurd. The correct answer would have to be, there's not enough information. But what they found was shocking. 
more than three-fourths of students actually tried to solve the problem by manipulating the numbers. Very few students questioned if the problem was even solvable. In fact, this was not just a fluke result. The study was replicated on a larger scale in countries including France, Germany, and Switzerland, even by researchers who thought this was not even possible. They were antagonistic to this hypothesis that students would just manipulate numbers, and they found the same thing. Researchers found shocking results again. Many students produced answers by manipulating the numbers in the question. One student reasoned along the following lines. Well, 125 plus 5 equals 130, that's too old of an age, and 125 minus 5 equals 120, that's also too old of an age. But 125 divided by 5 equals 25 sounds about right. So the student concluded the shepherd is 25 years old. So the official response in China is that the question was not a mistake. It was actually meant to be open-ended and encourage critical thinking, which is usually not present in math class. What's the lesson in all of this? The so-called Chinese test question that went viral was really a French research question from nearly 40 years ago. For such an absurd question, the correct answer is that there is not enough information. And I give credit to the school in China for asking this question. We still need to improve the critical thinking skills of students in math class. We still keep thinking that every problem we get is solvable and it should be solvable just by manipulating the numbers we get. But we should always think, does the question actually make sense? Is there enough information to solve it? So part of the point of this episode is to give you pause to consider if a work is attempting something different than common convention and to give you the tools to make that evaluation. That was part of the purpose in going through those different modes of literary analysis, text, authorial intent, context, and reader response. Originally, I had recorded almost half an hour of exhausted examples of each applied directly to these films, but couldn't find a way to coherently cut that down without scripting it from scratch and re-recording, and I just don't have the will to do it. Sorry. But I can repeat one part I regret cutting, and that's the explanation of the Joseph Campbell quote etched into Wonder Woman's sword in BVS. It's an excerpt from a longer passage which reads, quote, Originally, Artemis herself was a deer, and she is the goddess who kills deer, and the two are dual aspects of the same being. Life is killing life all the time, and so the goddess kills herself in the sacrifice of her own animal, end quote. And so the sword points to the paradox and duality of Wonder Woman and her sword. She wields it to take life in order to preserve and protect life. Its function is to kill, to save. She is a warrior of peace, a loving fighter, a sword of mercy. And we find these dualities and paradoxes throughout mythology because all lasting ideas have tensions in them, yin and yang. To be holy, you must in part be a heretic because otherwise you are complacent in your beliefs and take them for granted. So Jesus Jesus upsets the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. For Superman, his quote is about how alienation is universal, how an isolating experience connects us with everyone. Employing quotes like these in the film is evidence of a work intended to be appreciated beyond face value. You can only arrive at the translations in a pursuit of the authorial intent or in the context of behind-the-scenes research. In either case, those lead to a larger myth and ancient themes which influence the film. Think about that. It's impossible to come to that appreciation in a single viewing within the film itself. And it's easy for the critic to argue that that's a defect, but only if we assume that the only valid model of a work is one that requires no context, no research, no work, no analysis, no chewing by the audience. That's simply not true. 
Challenging works are an entirely valid approach. The most memorable and impactful moments are the ones where you were challenged. I climbed that mountain. I ran that marathon. I overcame this, got through that, etc. These are the experiences that last and are life-changing. And it would be absurd to deny any experience that wasn't entirely self-contained. Oh, did you have to train for that marathon? Well, then I guess it was meaningless. How ridiculous. We consider all that effort and training outside of the event intrinsic to its significance. And that absolutely applies to art as well. Not everything needs to be instantly accessible, spoon-fed, and easily digestible. Again, don't get me wrong. It is a remarkable skill filmmakers have to pull at our heartstrings and summon involuntary responses. And that's an essential first step towards empathy. But it's also the prevailing language of our film and almost an entirely passive one. Extracting emotion and empathy from that passive audience is an art. But exercising active empathy, putting that responsibility onto the audience, is also a valid, if risky, approach. I originally included studies cited by Gladwell and Kahneman showing that making people work harder for outcomes make them retain the material better and appreciate it more. But I always try to double check my references and it appears that the studies cited have not been replicated despite attempts to do so. It's still seductive or intuitive to apply the IKEA effect to art appreciation, but it's not up to my standards to do so without replication. And it's those standards that are kind of killing the production of this show. <laughs> Fortunately for me, I don't feel any particular pressure from the current slate of films to publish, and life is just too good to spend on episodes I'm not satisfied with, so there's plenty of time to find a new format, if at all. And I know that's ambiguous and unclear, but hopefully these films have helped you develop an ability to deal with ambiguity. <laughs> Basically, I have a lot of unused material and a lot of ideas that I still want to tackle, but I'm just not keen on spending the time to do so right now. That said, if you're wondering why it took so long for this episode to come out, it's because I did two episodes in between that weren't fit for release. I'll read off the production titles of the first one because that segues into my feelings about Justice League. So when I'm working on an episode, I always have a production title as a code name for the collection of notes, research, and recordings I'm building up until I can figure out the final theme and title to tie it together. For example, this episode started out with the production title Indie because like I said, originally there was an Indiana Jones theme throughout meant to tie together lasting artifacts, religion, principles, and themes of independent film, and there was a short segment on Spielberg leaving post-production of Jurassic Park to Lucas. Anyways, as the research picks up, the theme may change along with the title. So the final iteration of my Justice League episode had the production title Hydra because it was going to be an amalgam of nine earlier attempts at the episode, which I'll now read off with a little bit of commentary. Take one, episode 58, Irony. Production title, Middle Finger, giving the audience what it wants as a critique. Take two, episode 58, Injustice, production title, Passive, reviewing solely scenes shot by Snyder. Take three, episode 58, Engine, production title, Spanner, look at the logic and consistency of Justice League. Take four, episode 58, Everybody Knows, production title, Mourn, feeling the feelings, containing ill effects, helping, and eventually moving on. Take five, episode 58, History Lesson, production title, Clip Show, and that was pulling clips and songs from past episodes with new songs and new commentary, and that was basically spun into the Christmas card. 
Take 6, Episode 58, History Lesson, Production Title, Donner Cut, and that was a documentary on the history of the Donner Cut. And like I said, after all the work that went into those earlier iterations, I tried to assemble them into one episode, Take 10, Episode 58, Frankenstein, Production Title, Hydra, and it served as an illustration of the effects of mashing together different incomplete visions and trying to ship it as a final product. (laughs) I thought better of it and did it. So as far as Justice League goes, I was scheduled to watch it four times opening week with different people and occasions, but after seeing it three times, I declined the fourth viewing. I'm not intending to buy the theatrical cut unless deeply discounted, and while I'm open to others making a case for appreciation, I'm not prepared to chew on or revisit the film as it is right now. There was another episode between Hydra and Indy, but I'm keeping that one to myself for now, and I guess I should say something about the Snyder cut. My position is based basically been covered by the Suicide Squad cast episode 131. Even in the Hollywood Reporter article, which broke the news that Zack would be leaving Justice League, has in there, in black and white, that a rough cut was screened for filmmakers and friends. And that's not to be confused with an assembly cut, which you do not screen for others. Sources indicate that cut was further along than a mere work print without scoring or completed visual effects. But nonetheless, we're not describing a cut of this film that is ready to go, but an achievable aspiration. It's really easy to present the naysaying arguments, but I've studied history and the world too long to think that your dreams, convictions, or aspirations should just give way to the doubts presented by others. Don't get me wrong, it's still a long shot. It's still a remote possibility. But where would we be if we played it safe, never took chances, and never dreamed against all odds? I'm not willing to hold my breath over it. I'm not expecting it. I'm certainly not willing to sacrifice my sanity or character in anger, bitterness, or sadness to it because it's not my calling. But It may be for someone else or even you. If it is your calling, you don't need me to tell you and you're not going to listen to the naysayers anyways. But I'd encourage you to exercise the empathy espoused in this episode and put yourself in the shoes of the people on the receiving end of your requests. What does the story or narrative look like from their perspective? Are your actions and efforts encouraging them to do what you want or giving them license to look away or even demand that they distance themselves from you? Warner Brothers has a long history and for all that they've given the world, that history also contains some long-standing scandals and embarrassments. So attempts at shame are among the least effective measures on such an entity. Even if such a superpower were to humbly heal to your hearing and be held accountable, would you get what you want? Food for thought. In short, I believe in the result, but I will leave others to the method. But by and large, I personally move on. I want it. I wish for it. I suspect that someday, some way, somebody is going to get that footage out because nothing stays buried forever when it comes to Superman and Hollywood. But whatever my qualms about Justice League, they only increase my sense of gratitude and appreciation for the two films that we did get and how astonishing it is that they were made and released comparatively intact. And it's also an exciting era for a Superman fan with much on the horizon and beyond. Justice League presents a lot of questions, but not ones that I want to dwell on at this time. So to play us out, let's see, I've got an excerpt from I'll Be In My Trailer, The Creative Wars Between Directors and Actors, which features Richard Donner on Gene Hackman. And then I've got a short clip on how monetary incentive confounds creativity. (laughs) And finally, would you believe it, a song about illuminated manuscripts performed by educator Amy Breval.
so in case I can't get an audio clip, I'm just going to read the passage. So from I'll Be In My Trailer, Richard Donner says, I said, Gene, the mustache, it's got to go. And he said, no, the mustache stays. And I said, look, we're getting by with the hair and everything, but we're never going to get by with the mustache. Come on, you shave yours off and I'll shave mine. And at first he said no. Then he looked back at me and said, all right, but you do it right now. And I said, while you're sitting there, let Stuart take yours off first. Stuart, take off Mr. Hackman's mustache. Stuart started to shake. He knew what was going down and it wasn't going to be pretty. And he shaves off Gene's mustache. And he said, okay, sit down, you're next. And I said, I don't have to. And I peeled the fake mustache off. Hackman looked at me and his neck went four sizes bigger and the veins in his temple started to throb. He's a big mother and I knew he was going to knock me through a wall. But gradually a smile came to his face and he laughed and he said, I see what this picture is going to be like and I owe you one. And from then on, he was a doll. He was a doll on the set with ideas. He was easy to work with and we broke the problem. He had put a chip on his shoulder and I knocked it off and I didn't get hurt and he became one of the dear friends of my life. <laughs> That was Richard Donner in I'll Be In My Trailer. Maybe you can figure out the context or the authorial intent behind its inclusion in this episode. <laughs> Anyways, the next clip pertains to the effects of bonuses on creative performance. So what happens if you add a little bit of money to the equation? Well, the psychologist Sam Glucksberg did just that. He tried it back in the 1960s, which is a story that Dan Pink told on the TED stage. This shows the power of incentives. Here's what he did. He gathered his participants and he said, I'm going to time you how quickly you can solve this problem. To one group, he said, I'm going to time you to establish norms, averages for how long it typically takes someone to solve this sort of problem. To the second group, he offered rewards. He said, if you're in the top 25% of the fastest times, you get $5. If you're the fastest of everyone we're testing here today, you get $20. Question, how much faster did this group solve the problem? Answer, it took them on average three and a half minutes longer. Three and a half minutes longer. Now this makes no sense, right? If you want people to perform better, you reward them, right? Bonuses, commissions, their own reality show, incentivize them. That's how business works. But that's not happening here. You've got an incentive designed to sharpen thinking and accelerate creativity, and it does just the opposite. It dulls thinking and blocks creativity. And what's interesting about this experiment is that it's not an aberration. This has been replicated over and over and over again for nearly 40 years. These contingent motivators. If you do this, then you get that. Work in some circumstances, but for a lot of tasks, they actually either don't work or often they do harm. What explains that? What explains it is the power of if-then rewards and the power of these kinds of incentives. We love them. They get our attention, okay? Our eyes widen, and but more important, our focus narrows. That's actually good for some things, but for a creative problem, it actually inhibits you. It's you, actually a bad incentive. Right. To offer money in this case is a bad thing. Yeah. And this idea has been tested in all sorts of ways at the London School of Economics, at MIT, Carnegie Mellon, the University of Chicago. The list goes on and on. And Every single experiment came up with the same answer, that money actually narrows our focus and restricts our creativity. Let me tell you why this is so important. So what really matters are the more right brain, creative, conceptual kinds of abilities. The solution is not to entice people with a sweeter carrot or threaten them with a sharper stick. We need a whole new approach. The good news about all this is that the scientists who've been studying motivation have given us this new approach. It's an approach built much more around intrinsic motivation, around the desire to do 
do things because they matter, because we like it, because they're interesting, because they're part of something important. And to my mind, that new operating system for our businesses revolves around three elements. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy, the urge to direct our own lives. Mastery, the desire to get better and better at something that matters. And purpose, the yearning to do what we do in the service of something larger than ourselves. Finally, Amy Berval. He's a real special monk, sits in the scriptorium, making pretty letters on the
let's try to make a deal We'll listen to each other and see how the other feels With empathy we can understand We can solve our problems and make amends I don't know what it's like to be you and I don't know what you have to go through But I can try to see the world through your eyes Put myself in your shoes and empathize Everybody's got a different point of view How would I feel if I were you? Some people think this, some people think that I'm telling you empathy is where it's at We can solve our problems by talking and listening Instead of judging we can look at things differently Write to Congress and get them to see Instead of fighting we could try to use empathy Not entropy but empathy I don't know what it's like to be you And I don't know what you have to go through But I can try to see the world through your eyes Put myself in your shoes and empathize Not entropy but Talking empathy. about empathy Not entropy but Talking empathy. about empathy Talking about empathy. Not entropy, but empathy. You're the answer, son.